0: Welcome to the podcast.
1: In your car, at work, at home, on your smartphone.
2: Hit us up on Facebook
3: and Twitter. Find a quiet moment, put some headphones on. Is it just me that thinks this is like the best news in ages?
0: I don't know what happened, but I fell in love.
3: <laughs> the creators and hosts of Sky's Entertainment Backstage Podcast. Are you awake, Stevie? He's like, call me Ben. I don't think you could accuse it of being glamorous. <laughs> and I said, I'm not going to call you Ben
0: Benedict Cumberbatch.
4: I'm joined by the woman of the hour, Jodie oh, thank you very much. How
3: much fun are you having teasing us all at the moment? You've got a laugh. Let's go! Welcome to Backstage, the film and TV podcast from Sky News. Coming up, we'll dissect that Line of Duty series finale and discuss the new drama that's replacing it on Sunday night. So I'm joined today by Stevie Wong and Sky News Arts and Ents correspondent, Lucy Carter. What a thrill to have you here. Thank you, thank you. So (laughs) excited! How long have we been trying to make this happen, Lucy? I think it's been about three years now. we have been trying to get you on the podcast. Yeah,
5: it's it's been a long time. But, you know, the the programmes we're talking about is worth it. It was worth the wait. I'm really
3: excited. There's some good stuff to talk about. Oh my goodness, this is good. We love this level of enthusiasm. Me and Stevie are jaded old cynics, so it's exciting. Yeah, next time
5: I might not be so uh, upbeat, but you know, today it's okay.
3: (laughs) Starting strong, starting strong. And we actually, we're going to start off talking about uh, something uh, a bit more serious because we just think it's such a big story for the industry and for those that aren't aware. We just wanted to kind of have a look at it and, uh, and and mention what's going on. Talking about Noel Clark, it's after The Guardian um, collected allegations from 26 people against him for bullying and sexual harassment. So that led to BAFTA then revoking his Outstanding Contribution Prize and the police have also received a third party report of allegations of sexual offences, though they're not investigating as yet. He's responded. Well, he sort of did two responses, didn't he? he initially, he said uh, he'd deny any sexual misconduct or criminal wrongdoing. And then later on, he said he was going to seek professional help to educate himself and, and change for the better, because he appreciated that he you know really affected people. Um, We're sort of yet to hear any more from him. All the shows that he had coming up, Sky have halted production on the fourth series of Bulletproof, and ITV actually pulled the final episode of Viewpoint, which was running... Last week, um, it was on their hub for those that really wanted to catch it. And I, I must admit, I did feel sorry for everybody else that had worked on that show, um, which was sort of doing fine as an ITV kind of across the, the week drama. It must be um, tough to have your show kind of pulled when uh, you've you've done nothing wrong. But I think the interesting thing is sort of what next for BAFTA? Uh, it, it seemingly they were made aware of the allegations or some allegations against him prior to giving him this award. They said they didn't have enough evidence at the time. They didn't have first person testimony.
5: Reputationally, this situation has undoubtedly been extremely damaging for BAFTA. Uh, we actually got the first interview since the allegations were made against Noel Clark with BAFTA. Uh, I spoke to Dame Pippa Harris, the deputy chair, and she said... They went ahead and honoured Clark, which has now turned out to be very controversial, because the information given to them was anonymous or second hand. She said, you know, they were absolute pains to say to me, you know, if we'd had one fraction of the information, this is what Dame Pippa Harris said to me, that the Guardian had had, we would never have given that award. And as soon as they saw the allegations in the Guardian, they said they suspended that
3: award and, and that's true isn't it because we saw that happen at, 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 on on the night wasn't it that the allegations came out and straight after BAFTA did respond and and sort of um and did suspend that award so that is uh yeah that 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 all makes sense um but uh it, it seems as though BAFTA are, are sort of still figuring out what's going on what's happening next then well, uh, uh, we spoke also to um, the founder of the British Urban
5: Film Festival, Emmanuel Anyama Segway, who gave Clark a similar honour in 2019. They immediately stripped him of that award on Friday and... Uh, Emmanuel also rescinded his membership and his partnership with BAFTA. And he told me that BAFTA, in his view, had handled the situation horrendously and that the chair of BAFTA, Krishnendu Majunda, should now resign. So I put it to Emmanuel um, exactly what BAFTA told me. I said, Mm -hmm. look, BAFTA have said that they didn't receive first-hand accounts what they received were anonymous emails and then there was this letter that was written by three industry figures who said that they had heard first-hand accounts of sexual misconduct and abuse of power it's all a little bit complicated i know sorry but bear with me but no women had gone directly on the record with BAFTA Now, Emmanuel said, you know, this just wasn't good enough for him. He said not only were BAFTA not meriting the allegations that had come from the emails, but then they were saying that they weren't meriting the words of people in this letter that they'd worked with. So for him, he said somebody needs to be held accountable. And that starts at the top. So, Dame Pippa Harris said, you know, BAFTA absolutely stands by both its chief executive, Amanda Berry, and also its chair, Chris Majunda. But I mean, Claire, the problem with all of this is a sort of a wider question, isn't it? Whatever the repercussions Mm. are for BAFTA, what's really worrying is that these women were too frightened to come to this organisation at the top of the film and TV industry, when since Weinstein, the whole industry has been telling us that they're at pains to make it easier for people to report abuse, uh, to come to them, and this clearly is still not happening. So, you know, there are questions to be asked asked about the whole of the industry going forward and
3: i'm curious stevie how's it kind of hit stateside does anyone uh, over your way kind of care about bafta or and is Noel clark a big star over there
0: the answer for Noel clark is no like honestly if i asked any of my friends right now who are actually who watch tv and stuff maybe they may have heard him but in general he's just not he's not famous for the work that he's done. I mean, those the stuff that he's famous for in the UK, they just don't really translate that well uh, in the States, you know. And 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 as, you know, when you suggested that we take a look at Viewpoint last week, even I wrote back to you and I'm like, really? You know, so so for me, he doesn't have any kind of, like, gravitas. As a BAFTA Watch.
5: member, do you think that more people might come out and say, actually, this isn't on, I'm going to make a stand I'm not going to be part of BAFTA or are people worried about what that might do to their careers or to their access or whatever?
0: I mean, to be honest, it's like I I would assume that if you are a person with a conscience, like this would be something that you would be a little bit vocal about. I think if you're a member right now, a a person who has a little bit of power within the organization, Mm. you should say something or you should like... I, I, and I'm sure there are behind the scenes that there there are people kind of like making decisions and stuff. So yeah. again, there
3: must be some robust conversation. Yeah, I would I on, would I say that
0: there. that it's this is a, a watch this space kind of situation for us. And and I'm I'm sure this is not going to be the last we're going to be talking about mm. this stuff. We, I mean, in a way, these are good things. I mean, it's not good because of no Clark, but it's good because we are now having more conversations, and there has to be. Um, I think for the industry it's just going to be a little bit more open and so people will not be afraid to come forward and say these things because it's always the case of like people feeling that they are not able to because they, they want to keep their jobs and all that kind of stuff yeah, and I think people like by, of power yeah. that, that you know so, they don't want to risk um, you know yeah we're critiquing
5: award ceremonies an awful lot more than we ever have in, in yeah. basically the last year aren't we mm.
0: well I mean well, yeah. our, our next news piece is about the <laughs> another awards uh, uh, company <laughs> HFPA the Hollywood Foreign Press we have another we update. We talk about
3: every week now but for those that don't listen every week um, for, for those who they do, are of yeah. course the organisation behind the Golden Globes who received probably the most criticism ever this year and um, they've sort of always taken a bit of a bashing for being uh, confusing and uh, non-transparent. Anyway so the board has now written a letter to the organization's members, calling on them to approve this sort of sweeping set of reforms. So what's in these reforms then, Stevie?
0: I mean, it's a pretty interesting one. Listen, they—they. let's go back a little bit. Basically, a journalist tried to sue the HFPA, saying that they were using these ways to kind of not allow her to join, even though she's a legitimate journalist. And so that got a lot of press. Somehow the LA Times really decided that they wanted to like go go deeper and part of that was they started to look at the members of of the HFPA and they realized that there were no black members in mm-hmm. the Hollywood Foreign Press and then uh then you know Times Up showed up and then there's I mean it just kind of steamrolled into this thing where like they have no diversity and then the, the people that they hired also quit last week, and so it just got worse and worse. So they finally came up with this like this this announcement, and the vote is actually on the sixth of May. So um, hopefully the members will approve this. They're going to get at least twenty new members in twenty twenty one. They're expanding from people not they don't have to live in L A anymore, so they can actually yeah, live interesting. outside. Interesting. Uh, so interesting. I this is weird. Uh, I,
3: Stevie I, Wong, I see you getting approached to be a member of the
0: HFP. This is this is, I mean, this is like I'm telling you guys first, I had two emails sent to me and people were like, hey, would you join? And I but how very,
5: big are the goodie
0: bags. I know, right? Like, I get? Get is, all
5: these the press trips testing? still on. Yeah. And I bring all
0: of my back backstage folks with me and we can go in a group and we can enjoy this together. Um I I was very kind of like kind. I said let's see how the vote turns out. Because <laughs> you know um at the end of the day this is a very very rich organization they have a huge deal with nbc about the golden globe so there's a lot of money involved and so uh, on on the surface they need to change the way they look because they are a group that just tends to be a little bit older and they just seem out of touch and um they just need new fresh blood to come in and um hopefully by getting these 20 new members which you know will be predominantly black will do something it's so strange to me though because it's like they're just choosing this sounds a little bit racist, but it's like, they're just choosing people who are black, you know? And it's just like, that doesn't sound like, like change within. It's just like, it's a surface level, like counting of a token. Right. And so I'm a little bit awkward saying that I would like to join this thing because I see it for what it is, which is they're just like, pulling people in based on their color and that's not it, this should be a merit-based organization journalists who love film and television who vote for an award right like that's kind of the thing so again we'll see because <laughs> uh, <laughs> i interviewed yeah. one of
5: the hfpa members and um, when this whole furore uh, was at its peak just before the Globes. Yeah. Um, and he was an interesting guy and I had a very long conversation with him. And one of the things he said to me is, what he said at the end of it, he said, look, do you know any black film journalists in LA? Because I will sign them up immediately. We will do it immediately. As soon as you send this email to me, we will do it. Because he said, we just don't know any. Um, and and I'd been speaking to some, a journalist in London who was like, well, I know five. I mean, this is just absolutely ridiculous. So, I mean, they so desperately need to change. If those nominations next year do not look very different, they're in real trouble. I mean, it's like what Steve McQueen said about the BAFTAs last year, isn't it? They are in danger of becoming irrelevant if they don't change. And to change, they need to alter the membership.
3: Yeah, they need to make... They, if they, I, I agree, if they aren't seen to make some real good systematic changes this year, then I, I do think... Well, I wonder about the future. If they don't make these the changes,
0: groups. if the votes don't go through on the 6th for these changes, then the studio publicists who represent all the talent are going to say no, we're not going to allow any of our talent to go on your show anymore, so that's a problem. Wow. NBC will then look at that and just be like uh, if there's no stars, then why do we need to pay you X amount of dollars every year to yeah. have this? So a lot's writing on this vote um and 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 you know it, it's uh, i don't know again another organization <laughs> that needs face. a total <laughs> a total like but it's fascinating
5: and, uh, isn't it after we've come out of the oscars having its lowest audience ever <laughs> they're in massive trouble the globes uh, are in trouble the baftas are in trouble i mean I it's like <laughs>
3: I do sometimes wonder if we are the only people in the world that actually care about awards ceremonies. True, <laughs> I'm just not sure. Judging by the viewing figures this year, it does suggest it was only us watching. Yeah, it's so. I have to
5: say, it's waning my end. So, I mean... <laughs>
3: um what did get a lot of viewers though of course was uh the recent documentaries about britney spears and i just wanted to mention this because we talked a lot about the new york times doc when that came out earlier this year um we didn't talk too much about the the bbc one which has come out recently they both looked at the conservatorship that she's under and you know what got her there which was essentially a series of sort of very public breakdowns um and Brittany has now sort of had her say. In a post on Instagram, she said... Um, can you do, de- do
0: the voice? Do the voice. Do the
3: voice. I can't do the voice. I'm not going to do the voice because that's <laughs> insulting to Brittany. And I stan Brittany. Um, but uh, she said, 2021 is definitely better than 2020, but I never knew it was going to be like this. So many documentaries about me this year with other people's takes on my life. What can I say? I'm deeply flattered. Then she goes on to say, these documentaries are so hypocritical. They criticise the media and then do the same thing. Um, I'm thrilled to remind you that although I've had some pretty tough times in my life, I've had way more amazing times. And I think the world is more interested in the negative, which I just think is so fascinating because she's obviously kind of decided not to say something earlier. I think when the New York Times one first came out, she said she hadn't watched it, but she would cried, I think, seeing all the reaction to it seemingly from some other bits she says in this post she has now watched it because she sort of refers to um, a paparazzi uh guy in it and things like that but um do you think this is all sort of leading up to her big court appearance because she's recently said she wants to actually address the court in the in relation to the conservatorship she's asked for her father to be removed from it um we've not heard, from, we've only heard from her lawyers before, but she is going to appear at court, whether it be virtually or in person. That's sort of TBC. Um, is this kind of, are we leading up to a big return of, of Britney in our lives? Or is it
4: her?
5: Maybe it's not even her posting, because that's been in doubt before, <laughs> well, hasn't she's... it? And I love it that, that people have been saying, but it was her tone, because she put y'all or whatever in it. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, it was definitely
3: Britney. But she also <laughs> says... Because it was referred to in the BBC doc, the makeup artist, Billy Brassfield, uh, suggested that she doesn't do her own Insta account. And she actually wrote on the post... I don't actually talk to Billy B at all, so I'm honestly very confused. This is my Instagram, and judging by the number of exclamation marks, Four. I think it is her Instagram. I mean, building, to really it?
0: prove that it is her, she should just shoot all these videos, because, you know, whenever I watch a video of Britney Spears, I just, it just brings so much joy in my life. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's one of the best things on the planet. Um, listen, Wow,
5: I, you admit I, that! I, I, <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh God! Yeah, I mean, I, I stand her just as much as Claire does.
6: Um, yeah, big but Britney fans we, here, on the um, pod here Lucy. You know, she, she,
0: if she goes to court, that'll be interesting too, because obviously it'll be the first time that we get to see her in a public space like that, and and defending herself, which I think we just haven't been able to to see. You know, there's there was talk. I mean, in, in this BBC documentary, apparently the dad said that she had dementia at some point, and 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 it just it's it's kind of it's it's. It's scarring, I feel like. And and so if, if she's going to go there, we're going to – it is basically to see if she is of sound mind and able to make decisions on her own. And um, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I, I really hope that – all of this will end soon and we can (laughs) free Britney Britney. and we can get new music. Yeah, we just get music. I just I mean she's a performer through and through and 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 I think she's happier on the stage and I think, you know, with the right people around her, then I think this this could be a major, major comeback for a huge star that It
3: certainly feels like we're on the cusp of a new era of Britney. That's my sense with uh with everything that's going on at the moment. it be really, really interesting to see what happens in that court appearance. That's not until next month, though. But it's so, not um, just... I mean, again, the, the judge the will
5: obviously be making his decisions. And, and, and when you're in a conservatorship, isn't it? It's for people who can't make decisions because they're either physically Hmm. or mentally impaired and so he'll be making whatever judgment he has to but also the whole of the world will be watching won't they i mean we'll all be looking at her to see you know is how does she look how does she how is she acting because we've heard so many rumors for so long that she isn't of sound mind um it will be totally fascinating i mean i think people it's going to be massive isn't it absolutely massive it's gonna be
0: crazy are you gonna gonna go stevie sure i'll be i'll just my. you know i'm a slave for you like with the snake kind of outfit (laughs) and then i'll totally i'll be there um you know what i'm gonna predict something kind of interesting you know justin timberlake came out and apologized um for kind of really never defending her and slightly overdue some
5: might say
0: (laughs) <laughs> well, the boy is going to get a major reckoning because the guys behind the New York Times documentary, the next project they're doing is going to be the Janet Jackson piece, uh, and a lot no of it is really. going to be about that Super Bowl situation, which you know he never like he just kind of like threw her under the bus, and like yeah. her career never came back from we're, that. We're
5: seeing all these kind of historic. Um, um incidences and, and happenings and actions in just a completely different lens aren't we we're just it's just yeah. such a different time now kind of if he'd apologized at the beginning when it had happened it all kind of gone away whereas now we just yeah. we, we we are judging things in in a very different way and we just no well, longer it, find them yeah. acceptable do we in any way so it's or form. it's
0: it's proving that if you're silent and you see something wrong and you don't say something about it, it's going to come back and haunt you. And it's just like, mm. guys, everybody in the world who's listening, our five friends who are listening to the show right now, it's just like, listen, you know, if you see something wrong, please say something. It's as simple as that, you know, and and, and, and it it's just so weird that like... Uh, these like these people of power or have you know influence, they just like step back and let all this stuff slide, you know, and it it's gonna come back and haunt you, I'm telling you right now. So that's just my two cents. <laughs> oh
3: wow. We gotta be careful then. Yeah, know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to some reviews then. And I think we've been talking about this for seven weeks since uh, (laughs) the first episode aired. uh, And we can now finally talk about the end of Line of Duty. And I'm going to start with an enormous spoiler warning. We are going to talk about what happened in the final episode of the current series of Line of Duty and also things that happened in other episodes of other series. So just either wazz on a bit <laughs> through the podcast or prepare to have it spoilt for you. I do not want to receive a single email, tweet, comment about this spoiling you. This yeah, exactly. is your spoiler <laughs> warning. Okay.
0: All of these suspicious deaths were orchestrated by one officer in particular. H. The fourth man. What's going on? Air pose will secure the suspect.
3: Right, so here we go. It was finally revealed that the fourth man, R.H., was in fact all along the totally incompetent Ian Buckles. <laughs> <laughs> Poor <laughs> Jo <laughs> had no idea that when she was setting him up it was actually him that was controlling her. She hadn't so much on her plate anyway, thinking horrible old Fairbanks was her dad and then finding out it was Tommy Hunter. <laughs> I mean, what is worse? Having one old perv as your dad or your uncle as your dad? I don't know. But all ended well for her in her beautiful cottage with her beautiful dog in witness protection, Skippling uh, along the lanes. Became... Yeah, with her happy, we're yeah. a hot
0: lady friend actually. Yeah, I'm like,
3: she's doing, wow. <laughs> like,
0: doing, I mean, doing well. Doing right?
3: well. Fascinating that that is going to be the main takeaway from <laughs> that final episode, and we're left with, uh, with uh, you know, the writing on the screen telling us that AC12 are left weaker than ever, and Ted has to tell old Carmichael, old bitter old Carmichael, to carry <laughs> the flame. I mean, the episode got trashed on Twitter uh Piers Morgan who I mean I don't really care about his opinion but he said definitely in you know in the h spelling of definitely a tad underwhelming Marion Keys, the author right no I've never felt so let down and millions <laughs> and millions of uh, of fans kind of kind of said it was a bit meh, a bit underwhelming because there was no big action scene was there there was no big shoot'em up action moment but I quite liked it am I on way well, I mean that when, he, when they intercepted Joe, and then
5: they revealed she wasn't even in there, I thought that was great. And then the tension building up to the big reveal of the yeah. interview, like every single shot of different people and faces and hands, yeah. I was literally on the sofa going, oh, my God, I was oh it? Oh and then I was surprised. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm useless to these yeah. things anyway, but I was genuinely surprised it was buckles, no, which I, I thought was a good thing. I think thing. you're right,
3: Lucy. Yeah, I think most people by this stage had decided it was either going to be Osborne, the you know the, the top yeah. the top police board, or one of the main three. And I think both of those outcomes would have been disappointing because they just sort of Osborne would have been too obvious, and the main three sort of wouldn't really made sense. So I thought it was great that it was someone that made sense that had been there all along, but we'd all completely ruled yeah. him it out. It
5: was, I credible, that was
3: I Yeah, um, I also
5: thought yeah. what was really interesting. You've been reading all this stuff about linking. Boris Johnson and Buckles. I think that's, and that the big reveal was actually that this is all about, you know, uh, sort of criticising Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. Because the production company behind the show um, has been retweeting. Thing, uh, sort of links to, to these these yeah. these two. Um, like Alistair Campbell wrote, how some people can fail upwards beggars belief, obviously one of H's great lines, and then he writes, <laughs> best Jed Mercurio troll of Boris Johnson yet. And another one showed the picture of <laughs> Boris and Buckles, and another hasty line, your corruption has been mistaken for incompetence. Um, yes, well, and yeah. that's really interesting. And Jed Mercurio, obviously the creator of the whole show, has criticised Boris before um, calling him bent. So, I mean, that's my favourite bit of the whole thing.
0: That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lovely take. take.
3: (laughs) He did, um, I mean, he did, he tweeted, so it did get fairly bashed on Twitter, and I think for the reasons that we talked about, because there's no sort of big action scene and whatnot, and Jed tweeted, and I thought this was slightly passive-aggressive, he said, we knew attempting to explore the real nature of corruption in our society wouldn't appeal to everyone, (laughs) which is a bit snarky. Um, And Martin Compton uh old waistcoat Steve tweeted to say, to thank fans and say it wasn't the urgent exit type ending that some anticipated. Um, it did, however, get absolutely phenomenal oh, viewing figures. Absolutely phenomenal. So there's going to be more, yeah, isn't there? There's... They're not going to end it there, are they? Uh, well, actually the uk is funny
0: because you guys end things much earlier than like we do we, in the states we drag out things i mean look at gray's anatomy we're now into potential season season oh, 17 and it's like, like oh, they're just yeah. So oh, yeah 24 was like it just kept oh. on going and then they had a spin-off and stuff um i mean line of Duty can do for another i think they've got another show and under their belt you know at the, at the very end our our, our Core group are in the elevator together. They're kind of tired, oh, but yeah, like that scene
3: was a bit <laughs> oh, <I loved> it. <laughs> cringe, it? I
0: liked right. it too. Um, but uh, you know, there, they, no one died, and so that was kind of a good thing in, in that sense of, of our core three. And so we've, we, we can, they can go off and set up another group because obviously Carmichael is now running this new team, and yeah. so, um, that could, oh, pass. that
3: could give it a new, like, kind of kick. Yeah. Um, she's so, good, so, isn't good. She? Yeah. so she's in Motherland, and I saw a really good tweet, uh, where someone said, um, Oh, I like to think that um uh, Carmichael is the same character as in Motherland and she just has a really stressful job. <laughs> <Is that laughs> and that's brilliant. Then she goes and home thoughts,
4: and she's yeah. like, Ah I'm yeah. in
7: the office yeah. She gotta got deal with the
0: mothers after work. Yeah, and then, and then she has to go to work and be like, Oh, you guys are um that's I I oh, also think it was really it's it, it was a really good troll to like have images of James Nesbitt and then mm-hmm. never show him never. at all. And yeah, because so...
3: he'd said, hadn't he, in an interview, because he was in uh, the Jed Mercurio-produced show that was out earlier this year, Bloodlands, and he'd said in an interview, he was like, yeah, sort of joking but you know I'm I'm offended I've never been asked to be in line of duty <laughs> so the ultimate trolling is to ask him to be in it but kill him off before he I says anything just, just photos
0: of him in like a Hawaiian shirt on a boat it's all we need from our James Nesbitt um, but he's
5: been so, such a favourite of mine for so long since Cold Feet obviously and so I was so excited mm. when I saw that picture I was like oh this is brilliant this is there is absolute what oh, God. so for fans it, that was that was disappointing
3: not yeah. even in court. Do you think? Do you think? Because of course they did the extra episode this series, so there were seven instead of six. And I think Jed said at one point it's just because there was too much to fit into six. But do you feel like maybe that is also why that series finale felt slightly sedate because it was a sort of, you know, an extra episode to the to the normal to the normal six, like if they'd crammed everything in. But then it would have been very confusing, wouldn't it, trying to get it all away in six hours? Yeah, and I think, I I I mean, mean, I struggle
5: not to take notes. Like that woman in Gogglebox, I wish I'd started taking notes because, I mean, I was really confused. I mean, at points, if it had been any more packed in, I think I would have really lost
4: the plot. Yeah, I mean
0: it's confusing because they pulled in so many characters from previous seasons, yeah. also like at least, even by name, you know. And so, so I was like, "Huh?" I had to go on a line, <laughs> line of duty wiki online, and I was just like, "Who is this? Who, what's going on?" And then I was reading yeah. recaps because I was like, "I still don't know what I'm watching." And so, um, it just was one of those shows where I'm just like, "Ah, oh, this is a lot." But yeah, listen, it's one a it's a fans. it's an institution in the UK, and 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 I appreciate being able to like <laughs> be a part of of the viewers. I that love have. that
3: Stevie just laughs at us for our silly police dramas in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you Brits and your police don't dramas. Rinse it and
5: make 17,000 series just to, exactly. to,
0: to exactly. all completely dead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand this.
3: <laughs> um Martin Compton did also reveal that apparently him, Kate and Jed were going to get AC 12 million tattoos if they got 12 million <laughs> viewers, which they did do. They got more than 12 million for that Busted. last episode. They actually got a peak of uh more than 13 million. It's the most watched episode of a drama for 20 years. The last time a TV drama got higher overnight viewing figures was in fact an episode of Heartbeat, which is exactly the kind of uh, uh, police drama you should be laughing at as (laughs) forced TV. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, wild. It's just TV nowadays just does not pull in those kind of figures, does it? So it is, yeah, it's it's impossible to think that they won't be thinking, "Mm, it'd be nice to have another series of this and another, you know, huge, huge viewership uh it seems like an easy one if jed is up for writing it i suppose yeah they'll
5: definitely milk it for a couple more don't they definitely definitely no question
3: Um, so that is the end of, uh, of Line of Duty. But replacing it on uh, on Sunday nights uh, on BBC One from the 9th of May and getting some lovely promo by being advertised sort of around Line of Duty. I mean, talk about getting the best advertising slot of the week. Um, is The Pursuit of Love. Linda believes in love. She's passionately romantic. Here's Fanny. Life only about love yes
4: relax all discipline I could easily come to nothing so you aspire to being wicked and adulterous do you Linda? no I aspire to true love (laughs) love
3: is for grown-ups
0: as you'll discover one day come fight the fascists with me
2: better
3: get dressed first so this is a three-parter, um, adapted from the seemingly very famous, but I've never heard of it, 1945 novel by Nancy Mitford. It's set in Europe between the first and second world wars and is about, um, our lead Fanny, played by Emily Beecham and her cousin Linda, played by Lily James, um, who is this kind of ridiculously beautiful and charming and likeable character, but very controlled by her father, Matthew, played by Dominic West, which is just, absolutely gross and hilarious when you think about those pictures of them frolicking. Uh, uh, on the scooter and yes and then uh, Dominic's subsequent uh, kind of little press conference in his garden uh, like that they were dad and daughter in the show just uh, uh, also stars Andrew Scott as a kind of hilarious enigmatic lord He next did a fall. lot of
5: frolicking oh, as well didn't he?
3: Yeah. Oh, he gets so to, much frolicking. His, his,
0: his intro oh. is, is, is classic actually. It's just pretty, yeah. pretty darn
5: awesome. <laughs>
3: they're all super wealthy and very silly but it's quite good fun isn't it yeah I
5: it was sort of like I didn't know it felt like in some ways it didn't quite know what it was I felt like there's so many different styles in there and that's really interesting and quirky in a lot of ways but it was also quite I'm Mm. not quite sure I need another episode definitely I loved the sort of intensity of the female friendship I think that's really yeah um, it just reminds you of when you're a teenage girl and when you had a best friend and everything you, ha- you were so obsessed with them. I think that resonated yeah. really, really well. Um, yeah,
0: I liked it. I, I you know, uh, Emily Mortimer is the director of the series, and as we know, she's an actress and she actually plays uh, B- Bolt. Boltie is that <laughs> like on the show? Bolter. The Bolter, Bolter. Uh, Fanny, our lead F- sort of wayward mother. Yeah, Fanny's uh, a baby mama, but the actual mom, but like just doesn't exist in real life in her life. <laughs> um, so. Uh, Emily said that she was highly influenced by, by Sofia Coppola and even Wes Anderson and so you can Wes see Anderson those kind of out. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you can really see those, those influences on, on the screen it's a very well it's a beautiful looking show it's edited perfectly I think um, the soundtrack is really cool because it uses modern day like yeah. kind of alt rock kind of cool songs to like you know to set up like images of, of characters and things. And, Do um, you think
3: though Steve it's a bit too super stylized you know because you've got you know with the right on the screen, yes. and then those little kind of montages of stills to kind of show things. I don't know what that style is called, but it's a kind of yeah. I it, think it, I think what it, we're is too is much? we've
0: we've seen we've seen so many of these types of shows in existence. I mean, just throw them in a country house, and they're just like, oh, well I love anybody? Will anybody love me? I mean, like these are <laughs> things that just it's such a British kind of like trope. um So to even like <laughs> like change it up a little bit and have a visual that's not expected i i'm i'm all for that i mean it's only three episodes so you know mm-hmm. if this was something that was going to be like a full-on downton abbey you know 10 episode series i might be a little bit annoyed by that but i mean for three i'm good you know and and, and it's It's quite lighthearted, and and I'm more than happy to see the rest of the series. It is at the moment,
5: but warning there. But Uh, I also think what's really (laughs) really interesting is um, is kind of the the sort of continued fascination with the Mitford sisters as well, because this is written by Nancy Mitford, who is the, the kind of the oldest of these six society sisters, which we've all, like so many people have been so obsessed with for so many years they were kind of the it girls between the two world wars and they sort of lived a similar life to what is portrayed in the pursuit of love they were kind of very stylish very posh didn't have much education they were kind of really giggly um they they were
3: went out on these like seasons yes. where they go to London for the season. And they the were season. presented to the
5: king. So I think, and then it was all, there was all the scandal with two of them ending up with Nazis, one with a communist, one ending up at, oh, at, at, at like, the Duke. <laughs> I mean, Dutch's. that's a series. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and there have been so many programs about the Mitford sisters. And I think be, I love that kind of um, uh, the, the sort of the reality um, based behind the fiction. Mm. I think that's that's absolutely fascinating as well.
0: I mean, if you're a fan of this, the good news is that you know uh, Nancy Mitford wrote this as a trilogy, so there's two more books. And so the good news is, um, if you love this, then hopefully the BBC will commission two more of these.
3: Uh, funny though, it's hard, isn't it, being the sort of less charming, less beautiful. Like she when so she hot. does see her mum at the party, she says, "Don't hang out with the." With, with oh, she people had that, more beautiful unfortunate than haircuts, you
0: know, <laughs> <laughs> like, I was just
3: like what would you do? Uh, she's I mean, like she'll just do anything that older uh, Linda says. It is. I agree, Lucy. It's very reminiscent of teenage. Friendships between women, and I think so many women will resonate yeah. with this, and 'll we'll just watch it and love it uh, for that, if nothing else and I actually think Lily James is very good in this. I know she 's quite divisive, and some people don 't think she 's a great actress and uh, maybe don 't warm to her too much, but i I think she 's really, really, uh, very good I got this. a
0: big up uh, Emily Beecham, who you know I feel like um in 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 she she was in a film that was at Cannes and won best actress so this is like an award-winning like kind of top tier lady um and and but her her choices of what she's been doing for the past couple years has been really awkward like she was in an action series called uh, i don't know she was in an action series a couple like it was a full-on kung fu thing and then she's also in cruella next and so i i can't really like pinpoint who she is and maybe that's Mm. her her, her approach to acting she'll just you know do all these different things but i i think she's really good and um I, i'm a fan and and i can't wait to see what else she's going to do next so um yeah. big up to emily even though Lin- lily is taking all the, <laughs> all, the all the press <laughs> glory um
3: and uh and, and also uh, if, if nothing else just watch it to uh to kind of watch the lily james dominic west vibes oh. and uh, see how weird and I that that is. his whip Andy Scott. Yeah, and I mean, Scott. not oh, to yeah,
8: love? I could
5: just watch him all day, yeah. all night,
3: whenever. <laughs> I mean, it probably won't appeal to all of those Line of Duty uh, <laughs> watchers, all sort of 13 million of them, but certainly some of them will uh, will be tuning in Sunday night. So that's um, Pursuit of Love on BBC One from the 9th of May. Um, moving on to a film then, Oxygen on Netflix from the 12th of May.
5: Pourquoi je me souviens de rien
3: Je suis Milo, votre médicale interface de liaison opérateur.
7: Je suis forcément malade.
3: Aucune maladie Pourquoi? ou anormalité détectée. J'ai
0: fait malade. What happens when you are a young lady and you wake up and you totally find yourself in a medical cryo unit and the only communication is this Milo like kind of like 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 machine and voice. and voice who won't tell you exactly what's going on and you don't remember who you are and how am I going to get out of this thing and so that's a setup um of this it's it's she's
3: like running out of oxygen she's, okay, sorry 35 percent she's got to remember, got to remember <laughs> who she is and where she is and why she is uh
0: this this is it's a really good setup and you know we've had other films like this like that ryan uh, reynolds movie buried and 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 it's a tough the genre of like being like in a closed environment, buried alive. <laughs> these 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 things play out mostly in real time, you know. And so mm. it's ninety plus minutes of something very claustrophobic. So if if this sounds like a horrible situation for you, I would say oxygen probably isn't your 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 jam. But I have to say that it's directed by this really great director Alexandre Aja, who's like this French. He he like he's he's just he know he does all these really fun genre movies and this is well, like a,
3: recently he did Crawl which was like really beloved in Oh my god. In the, in that did you watch genre, that? Wasn't did it? you watch
0: Crawl? It was like
3: Of course
5: I did <laughs> <laughs> It's a French horror. He has a, just no. I mean Yeah.
0: That
3: one's like oh. a Hollywood. Horror that was a Hollywood. It was
0: basically a, a young girl uh stuck in a basement with a crocodile. And so that's the oh, whole premise. So it's her no. trying to get out. So So he has this tendency to like find female actresses and then put them in situations and see how they get out of it. and 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 in this case, we have um, the Cesar winning Melanie Laurent, who you may have Mm -hmm. seen her in Beginners. She was in that film. She was also in. She was in in Tenet. Yeah, duh, Tenet. Yes, and so um, I I have to remember that. Um, And so, um, (laughs) which a lot of us don't remember. Um, And and uh, you know, she is such a great actress. So to watch her for ninety plus minutes to try to figure out who she is um mm-hmm. how, how she's going to get out of this situation it's it's a it's a little bit of a masterclass, i would say in, in terms of of watching that kind of play out there's one um, scene yeah, isn't, there's one set you're...
5: isn't there she's literally just lying yeah. in a box yeah. and she does she, it in it she does hold your attention for however long yeah. it is 90 minutes which i found extraordinary and that's a massive testament to her acting i mean on a level of whether I enjoyed it or not, I absolutely hated it. I mean, for most of it, I was like, "What <laughs> on? Oh how are they making you watch this? This is I'm just, just this is so awful. my worst nightmares are being like literally buried alive." And this was all of those things. But I can see right. from a kind of you know a critique point of view, it was fantastic and, and she was amazing. But don't don't watch mm. it if you don't like this sort of thing. I mean, what?
3: <laughs> yeah, it was quite stressful. Um but I yeah i I enjoyed it more than I think I thought I was going to because I was worried I was gonna be scared of it. um it was originally gonna start uh Anne Hathaway and then and then it was also gonna go to Numi Rapace. so I, I just think it's really interesting because I do think Melanie Laurent is yeah. so good in this, and I'm so glad uh that it ended up being her. I just can't imagine. The, the the sort of that Anne Hathaway in that role it, it feels so different. Well, um, the interesting thing said, was made of is,
0: is that this was this is an uh, an English script and so it was one of the, you know every year there's this thing called the blacklist where people like you know list the ten best like scripts of the year and and they're all unproduced and then studios kind of troll those 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 scripts and then they make them into films and so this was a blacklist script that like was that came out a couple years years ago which is why Anne Hathaway was in in the running because it was going to yeah. be an English language kind of piece yeah and then when um Alexandra like took over obviously he hasn't done a French film in years and so this was kind of a return to his homeland and his home language and stuff and once that happened of course he had to choose a French actress to kind of like take it over mm. and and melanie to her to her like kind of I mean she's great so this is really yeah. nice to see I her. Enjoy,
3: I enjoyed that it was uh French I think uh, I think I would have like le- liked it a bit less maybe if it was in English I just uh, it kind of added an extra element to the not knowing what was going on <laughs> like, um and then of course it was made last year and you know one of the easier productions i'd have thought to make during lockdown because it is just this sort of one single (laughs) set very very few characters in there um, and not a lot of other filming going on and,
0: and it's interesting i read this article about about this film you know first of all she's there are hints that in the outside world there was a bit of a pandemic um and yeah. then also she's enclosed in this space and so a lot of us obviously spent the past year like in our own space and so there are yeah. there are kind of like interesting connections to exactly how we may have felt uh all of last year and so oxygen seems very timely if you will and and yeah. and um
3: oh, and there's some great twists aren't there so like you know the you know as you'd expect in a sci-fi things are not you know necessarily what they seem and the twists come and things change quite quickly. And I, do you know, I think I just, um, I don't think of myself as being a huge fan of sci-fi, but I think I actually am. I think, uh, I think it's my, my, my genre because I just really enjoyed all of that. And the kind of this, this idea of, I love exploring the, these ideas. The of beauty the of
0: sci-fi in hold. general, we always have female protagonists who have to step up and do amazing, amazing things. Like some of my favorite sci-fi movies, of course, are like aliens when you have Ripley, like Sigourney Weaver's character. Mm. And so, um, This is kind of a nice, you know. I've always been a fan of sci-fi because of that, because you get to see these people step up and and, and maybe be the the center of of, of their narrative, which you know maybe in other shows like action films, maybe they won't have the chance to be that person, you know. And so, Mm -hmm. sci-fi has always been a place for me to kind of see my ladies do really, really well, you know. And and, uh, you know, this is another great example. Um, So I'm I'm glad it exists out there. And so, if you want to see something like that, Oxygen is on Netflix on May. the 12th
3: and that's it for this week uh next week we're going to be talking about amazon prime videos new series from barry jenkins and hearing from the man himself stevie give us your one word review of underground railroad because you watched it and did the interviews
0: it's a lot (laughs) <laughs>
3: it's, Ooh, a lot. A lot. it's a lot. It's a lot. You got that to come next week, <laughs> yeah. so that will be uh, that'll be excellent. Um, in the meantime, you can email us backstage at sky. uk. We do love to hear from you, and please do rate and review us on your podcast app. That is massively appreciated, especially five star reviews. Um, and thank you so much, Lucy Cotter, for coming and thank joining you. Come us. Come back again, do you think, please do. Do you think we'd come back again definitely. soon? Definitely like loved it. maybe. A S A P. Like, should we not leave it three years? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> three weeks. Three Date. Weeks? <laughs> Perfect. Amazing. Perfect. Um, uh, until then, take care. We'll see you next week.
9: Bye. Bye.
3: Bye. Keep listening to our weekly episodes to find out more.
9: Just a warning, this podcast contains description of sexual assault which may be distressing for some listeners. Do you know what sexual assault is? Do you know what your rights are in relation to sexual pleasure? Could you explain sexual consent to a friend? Are you confident in managing pressure to have sex? Do you know how to avoid pressuring others into having sex? These are just some of the questions asked to over some 1,000 students in a survey by the Higher Education Policy Institute and Youth site. The results may surprise you. They found most students want sex education to be compulsory during the university welcome period, otherwise known as Freshers' Week, and more than one in ten said they weren't confident on how to communicate consent clearly. Now, for some of you listening, this may be nothing new. Inexperienced teenagers aren't going to know their way around relationships just like that. But there is a problem if a lack of education is leading to incidents of sexual harassment and sexual assault.
10: She's not been used to me leaving for the day. So (laughs) both today and yesterday, the second I come in, she's like
9: This is Sydney. She moved from the US to the UK to study. But her three years at university meant to be the best three years of her life, were anything but. When sharing her experiences of sexual violence, she didn't know where to start.
10: I'm not really sure how, how long to talk for. Um, there were a few nights out where some of the male students in my year were really inappropriate, not just with me, but with a lot of other people in my school. I had someone who I believed to be a very close male friend. When I was, you know, we, were, we had all gone out drinking. Um, when I went to sleep, um, you know, just thinking we were all just friends and it was all innocent, I went to sleep and I found out later that he was doing things to me in my sleep. I found out that he, he had kissed me and done things to me while I was asleep.
9: Sydney's story is not one of a kind. Everybody's Invited is a website set up to allow survivors of sexual harassment and assault at university to share their stories anonymously. So far, over 16,000 testimonials have been submitted, and 119 different universities have been named, and the list keeps growing. Reading some of them, it struck me how many of the accounts took place in educational institutions. I didn't think they would believe me because he was my boyfriend. I didn't know what he did was illegal. I'm male. I feel it's not acceptable to report it. These are just a handful of anonymous submissions to the Revolt Sexual Assault website, another platform set up to give sexual violence survivors a voice. So, do our students have a sex problem? How are survivors trying to speak out? And how can we teach consent in a way that's helpful to young people? I'm Ashna Harinag, and welcome to the Sky News Daily podcast. It took Sydney a long time to realise she had been assaulted.
2: I,
10: I didn't realise that for, for years later. Um, I had actually already experienced that with a different male friend when I was, when I was about 16. Um, Again, I, I thought I was, I was with a safe group of people, went to go to sleep, and, and woke up to the guy checking to see if I was awake and then kissing me. Because it had already happened, I, I, I just really internalized that and just thought, oh, it must be something I'm doing. It must just be something I'm putting out there to my, to my male friends that that's something okay to do to me. I think I also really feared the confrontation. I think it's it's really hard to say anything to people that are that are friends and acquaintances, and especially people that you know you're going to have to be working closely with for the next three years. I, I was terrified of of being part of the gossip mill of people talking about me, of people um, blaming me for ruining uh, friendships in the year or causing trouble or causing drama. He kind of continued to sexually harass me for three years. Um, Woods like constantly commenting on my appearance and telling me that he was gonna have me when I was single. I didn't understand any red flags. I, I didn't understand all of the varying forms that violence can take. I I really just had the very black and white mindset of, oh, it's stranger in a dark alleyway. It only happens to very few people and anything else is just it's just something weird. It's just something that, that yeah, was uncomfortable, Um, but maybe you know you caused it or maybe they were just drunk um and so there's there's no reason to make a big fuss about it even if it keeps you up at night and causes you to lose trust in people close to you and causes you to change your behavior um that that it, it's not a it it, can't, it couldn't have been because it's only one thing and i think the people as well that are perpetrating it also have those images in their heads and think oh it can't be me because because we're not in a dark alley <laughs> it's just me and my friend um i'm a good guy i'm a good guy deep down i think media plays a lot in regards to uh, forming this image both in survivors and in perpetrators and therefore reinforces the self-blame in survivors and then reinforces i guess lack of accountability in the perpetrators oh having the girl and and patience is rewarded and and longing for someone who, who doesn't see your connection just yet. But if you just keep pushing, even when she says no and keep pushing and keep pushing, that that's actually romantic when the reality is much darker and much more sinister.
9: Last month, the Office for Students, which is an independent regulator of higher education institutions, published its statement of expectations This is a list of steps that universities should be taking to deal with sexual misconduct. They involved ensuring there are processes in place for students to report incidents, ensuring investigations are fair and independent, and ensuring codes of conduct are made clear to all incoming students. The chief executive, Nicola Dandridge, urged all higher education providers to review their procedures before the next academic year, which starts in September. She said this was a real opportunity for universities and colleges to make a difference and would strongly urge them to grasp it. Education Secretary Gavin Williamson also voiced his support, urging universities to take the issue seriously and act where necessary.
11: My oldest, closest friends were only then sharing their experiences with me. And even with your closest friends, you just don't talk about these things especially in your sort of student bubbles, where very often the perpetrators are known to you, they're known to your friendship circles.
9: But students are taking matters into their own hands
11: too. My name's Kira, I'm co-founder of Revolt Sexual Assault. We started the organisation back in 2016 to really try and give a voice to survivors of sexual violence at university in the UK.
9: When they are sharing these stories... What do they say it feels like? Because that's, I imagine, they haven't told many people, if if anyone, mm. about what's happened to them. Yeah, but does the yeah. anonymity behind it make them feel in- empowered in a way?
11: There's still a huge amount of silence and shame just sort of shrouding people that experience these. And it takes a huge emotional toll on survivors. So being able to share anonymously, with no judgments, with no sort of loved one, friend there to kind of react in a potentially positive, negative way. It just sort of, it takes a lot of that stress off their shoulders. And we found that people have sort of said how much of a empowering and healing and cathartic experience it is to be able to share their story and have it heard without judgment, completely believed.
9: What are some of the testimonials that you've received? What stories have you heard in your time at Revolt?
11: The shocking thing for me is just how common it is to experience assault and harassment and really serious kinds of assault and for the perpetrators to sort of have no real consequences. One really interesting thing that's come through in our research as well is the number of students that would say, oh, no, I haven't been assaulted or harassed. But then they would say, oh, yeah, I have been cackled. I have been groped in a club and actually not recognizing that that is harassment, that is
9: sexual assault a lot of the stories a lot of the perpetrators are sometimes within existing friendship groups or in the same Mm -hmm. campus on the same courses is that a common pattern in the stories have you noticed that a lot of these acts of sexual harassment or assault tend to involve friends or be within relationships that people are having or whether it's at parties for example is it kind of embedded in a culture at university?
11: In society, generally, it's a complete fallacy that sexual assault is, you know, being pulled into a dark alley at night by a stranger. That's not the way the majority of people experience it, period. But especially in the university setting, in these little student bubbles where the people who are in your, you know, in your halls are the same ones in your lecture theatres, they're the same ones in your supermarket, they're the same ones in the clubs on the nights out. It's, it's completely inescapable. So when the perpetrator is in that bubble as well, what we've seen is that it's the, it's the survivor, it's the person who's experienced these crimes, who's forced to withdraw from, you know, from student life, from student activities, from their course, dropping out of university entirely sometimes.
9: How often do you hear from men in these conversations who have had personal experiences of their own that they're sharing with you?
11: That's a really important point. It's not anywhere near as often as we hear from women is the answer. The secrecy and the shame that every survivor feels is is compounded even further in male victims when they're male survivors, when they're you know they're having to deal with toxic masculinity and all of these other issues. Um, no it's something that really needs to be spoken about more.
9: Coming up shortly. Kira tells us what topics will be included in the Revolt 2021 survey as they hope to uncover the realities of student sex lives in the UK. Plus, we meet the woman running a university consent course. Dr Elsie Whittington explains why mandatory Freshers' Week sex education is not the road to go down. Now, can you tell me about Revolt's 2021 survey? What's it going to include and how come you're going about doing this?
11: It's going to be similar to our first survey, which um, gave a really comprehensive overview. Um, We surveyed, it was about 5,000 students from 153 different institutions on their experiences of sexual assault and sexual harassment, where it happened, how many times these instances happened, were the perpetrators known, the attitudes that were prevailing on campus at the time, why they reported if they chose not to, how they were treated if they did, both in terms of the university and the police. It's a really all encompassing survey. So, yeah, we're repeating it now, but with additional focus on image based sexual abuse as well as the sort of traditional forms of assault and harassment, because particularly in sort of COVID area where the physical restrictions are sort of limited, we've heard anecdotally that, you know, revenge porn and things like this have kind of been on the increase um, and and yeah we, re- we are you know really keen to just sort of get some really robust quantifiable data to show that unfortunately things haven't really changed from from our 2018 survey
9: you know there is so much more that still needs to be done. I remember when I was at school, sex education mostly involved bananas and courgettes being handed around the classroom. Being in an all-girls school didn't help the giggles, as you can imagine, or the maturity of the 15 and 16 year olds going out the window. And we were all handed a little goodie bag at the end, which had a bunch of leaflets inside for further reading. But Dr Elsie Whittington believes sex
4: education should be about so much more than that. I think a lot of sex and relationships education has historically been about you know avoiding STIs and unintended pregnancies and I had a young man in a group that I was working with a while ago who said like it's all very well showing me how to put condom on but actually I want to know how you get to that point.
9: Elsie is a research fellow at the Safer Young Lives Research Centre at the University of Bedfordshire.
4: And what he's saying there is, I want to know, how do I do that negotiation? How do I do the flirting? How do I do the having the conversation about whether the person I'm with even wants to be in a position where I'm putting a condom on? Young people I work with, whether they're 13 or 25, or the main thing they want is to have conversations about the awkward elements of sexual negotiation. So I think a lot of sex education and sexual consent campaigns might say, you know, Yes, means yes, no means no, and those are really important, but the bit that young people and people who are kind of earlier on in their kind of sex lives want to understand is, how do I create a conversation in which someone could say yes or no, it's actually really unusual for people to say a direct no to anyone. So for example, after this, if you were to be like, "Hey, also, would you like to come to the pub with me?" And I was sort of thinking, "Oh, I'm not sure about that. I don't know." It's unlikely I would say, "No, thank you." is much more likely that I would say, you know, that's a really sweet offer, so nice, but actually I've already got plans and I'm seeing someone else, but maybe next time, right? So I'm just gonna like fob you off. Um, And that is something we routinely do in our everyday lives in so many different situations. And why would it be any more easy for us to say a direct no in that kind of sexual interaction that is more awkward because we're more silenced around it, we're less used to talking about it. And so that I think is part of the, the key thing for sex education, sex educators' campaigns in schools and universities need to start thinking about is how to create that space for the awkwardness of navigating those maybes, those yeses, those noes, and allowing things to unfold a little bit differently than the script that we all see in rom-coms where, you know, you have a big passionate kiss and then someone says something funny and then the next thing we know we're rolling around on a bed together.
9: And then also it's a conversation, do you think, around um, the awkwardness of rejection and how we handle that as humans?
4: Yeah, totally. And I think, I think consent is understood as giving or getting a yes or a no. And mm-hmm. I think we're using the word consent to capture a lot of stuff. And what we're really talking about is communicating and holding space for vulnerability, for the risk of a no, um, for the possibility that something might happen differently than we'd imagined again we need to sort of start earlier on in our lives building resilience for hearing those and getting those that can happen from a really young age where actually if you say no i don't really want to give my granny a hug today that that's okay and it's not seen as as kind of this huge mortifying event that really is going to break the fabric of your social interaction the rest of your relationship
9: So, Dr. Elsie, you're teaching a course called Rethinking Sexual Consent to University Students. What type of conversations and questions are you hearing the most coming from the men you teach and then also the women as well?
4: You know I get very few men taking this course it's an optional course and the ones that do frequently they're joining because they feel like they want to be able to have better conversations with their male friends with their younger brothers and also they want to understand kind of different lived experiences and perspectives on sexual violence and harassment but also one of the things that I do on this course is I'm, I'm looking a lot at risk and ideas of safety but also ideas around joy and pleasure and possibilities for things being different and I think one of the key conversations that we end up having is about how can we shift away from always focusing on the law and the negative side of things because I think that a lot of the young men that I speak to and this is especially the case with much younger men when I've worked in schools 14 15 perhaps haven't had sex yet but they're really worried that what they are doing or an interaction that they have might end up being illegal and we need to shift away yeah and it's it it means that actually rather than thinking about what do I want and what would the other person want and what would be pleasurable and what would what would be fun for us to do together there's more of a focus on how can I make sure that I don't do anything that would get me into trouble. Um, and so then we find that when we're talking with um, university age younger men, they're wanting to learn a language around how can I create space for what could happen? Or how can I hear that? No. Or how can I navigate this stuff in in the nighttime economy, for example, if drinks are going to be involved, which I, th- I think is a key conversation that we have in universities often.
9: Were there any thoughts or questions when you first started teaching about sexual consent that surprised you going into it?
4: One of the things that consistently surprises me is how when you start the conversation, everyone's got a very black and white clear answer about what is consent. So you ask a group of people, I could ask you now, what's your definition of consent? And I imagine that it would be something along the lines of, you know, it's it's agreeing or giving permission to a a sexual interaction Mm. or about saying no. And actually then as you kind of do workshops or you have conversations about the reality of how you negotiate that kind of consent that then people at the end of a session saying actually consent's not just about permission consent is like an ongoing process and I think one of the things about it being an ongoing process is it feels a bit uneasy and unsettling because it's never fixed and I think that that's one of the things that a lot of the students that I work with at university are really interested to unpack.
9: Now you mentioned earlier that your course that you teach is is an opt-in course.
4: Mm-hmm. But
9: do you think that these courses should be compulsory? Do you worry that there are is a large proportion of the student population that maybe should be taking these courses, but choosing not to?
4: I, I find that a really tricky one because I sort of think forcing people to take a course without consent is an absolute, that like, would be a total irony, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm here to iron. teach you that everything's um... It's okay to say no, but yeah. you must take this. Exactly. I think if universities want to make a targeted effort at making sure everyone accesses and participates in consent education at some point, it needs to be more than something that you think you've got to do in Welcome Week. It could be embedded into wider parts of the curriculum. If people are doing English literature, loads of the texts that people will be learning about will have depictions of sex, of relationships, of um, potentially of sexual violence, you know, there's whole conversations that can be had there. Also, got to be delivered by someone who is confident, who has the language uh, to have these conversations and who can hold the awkwardness. And so that's what I think about both at university and schools. You know, I can have a conversation with you, I can say the word sex penis on a podcast and not, you know, go bright red and embarrassed. Because I've got practice at it and I can say the word sexual violence without feeling like, oh, I'm not sure if I should be saying this because I have the practice. And so I do think there needs to be more support for staff who might end up taking on the role of delivering some of this education. A university's
9: UK spokesperson told Sky News that they welcome the Office for Students' commitment to tackling all forms of harassment in higher education and look forward to working with them. They said universities have accelerated efforts to address harassment to misconduct in recent years and are in no doubt of the urgent need for progress, but the evidence shows there is still a long way to go. They will continue to support members to bring about a culture of change and embed policies to ensure universities become safer places to live, work and study, including online. They also added that compulsory sex education in English schools from September 2020 will hopefully create more consistency to the training those students have received before they get into uni. What's increasingly clear to me is the magnitude of confusion surrounding the issue of consent, a basic principle of gender equality and healthy relationships. Some may blame the proliferation of social media and pornographic sites that many children as young as eight are accessing, but at the end of the day, Perhaps there is a general lack of discussion around sexual relationships. Perhaps one of the solutions is adapting sex education in schools. Thank you for listening to the Sky News Daily podcast hosted by me, Ashna Harinag, and produced by Lauren Pinkney. If you want to hear more stories like this, take a look at our website and app, and check out our other podcasts too. See you next time.
12: Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode.
2: We call on all sides to exercise restraint and to exercise calm. The United States will continue to remain engaged with senior Israeli officials and Palestinian leadership in the days and weeks ahead. Just today, in fact, Secretary Blinken had an opportunity to speak to his counterpart, Israeli Foreign Minister Ashkenazi, to condemn the rocket attacks and to reiterate this important message of de-escalation. Next, in view of the ongoing COVID-19 crisis in Brazil, the United States is partnering with the Pan American Health Organization, or PAHO, to provide access to approximately $17 million worth of essential medications to treat critically ill COVID 19 patients who require intubation to be connected to life saving ventilators. Today, 164 pallets of medication arrived in Sao Paulo and are being prepared by the Brazilian Ministry of Health for distribution to hospitals across the country. The United States government facilitated supply will enable Brazil to meet its critical hospital needs for at least 30 days. This action comes in addition to over $16.9 million in direct U.S. government assistance and $75 million in private sector support to Brazilian communities and governments across the country. As we have consistently said, as long as the virus continues to spread anywhere, it remains a threat to people everywhere, including to Americans here at home. That is why this administration has stepped up to again help lead the global effort to fight the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, and we will continue to do so going forward. And finally, the United States Government welcomes the announcement by President Ghani that the Afghan Government will join the Taliban in observing a ceasefire over the Eid al-Fitr holiday. We urge both sides to build on the momentum of this ceasefire by engaging in serious negotiations on a political settlement and a permanent and comprehensive ceasefire. While the Eid ceasefire is a positive step, innocent Afghan civilians have borne the costs of decades of war, and they deserve much more than just three days free of violence. The United States remains committed to the Afghan peace process, which presents the best opportunity for Afghans to reach a just and durable political settlement and to assure ensure a future for Afghanistan that is free of terrorism and of senseless violence. And with that, I'm happy to take your questions.
13: Thanks. Uh, Ned, on the um, call between uh, the Secretary and the foreign – the Israeli foreign minister, when you said that he condemned the uh, rocket attacks from Gaza into Israel, and then you also said he uh, reiterated our important message of de-escalation, mm-hmm. um, to you or to the to the administration, what does that mean from the Israeli side?
2: Could you repeat that? What does that mean from the Israeli side?
13: From from the Israeli side, what specifically would you like to see them do to de-escalate? I'm going to ask the same thing about the Palestinian side.
2: Uh, well, uh, as you know, Matt, we have called uh, on both sides and, in fact, uh, given Hamas's uh, horrific uh, terrorist attack, its rocket fire into Israel, we have called on all sides, uh, of course including Hamas, um, to cease uh, this activity. Uh, the loss of life, the loss of Israeli life, the loss of Palestinian life, uh, it's something that we deeply regret. Uh, we um, are urging this message of de-escalation uh, to see this loss of life uh, come to an end. Um, as you know, we've been very clear that Israel does have a right to uh, defend itself. Um, uh, at the same time, uh, reports of uh, civilian deaths uh, are something that um, we regret uh, and that we would like to see come to a stop.
13: Yeah. But that, but what specifically do you want to – other than an end to the rocket attacks from, from I, Gaza into Israel, which is a specific thing which you've called for already? from the Israeli side and from the Palestinian side in terms of what's happening in East Jerusalem <clears> and uh, on the – around the holy sites, what specifically would you like to see?
2: Well, what I would say is that we have seen some encouraging steps, um, both from Israel and from Palestinians. The decision yesterday to reroute uh, the uh, Jerusalem Day parade, the decision on the part of the Israeli Supreme Court to delay uh, the Sheikh Jarrah uh, decision was, was 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 welcome, uh, as 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 <laughs> was, as was as was the decision by uh, Prime Minister Abbas uh, to um, a uh, President Abbas, excuse me uh, to um, uh, call off uh, the uh, Eid celebration, uh, Eid um, uh, celebration. Uh, so look, I am not going to um, offer uh, specific advice uh, to both sides uh, f- or either side from the podium. I will say that our message continues to be one of uh, prioritizing de-escalation urging calm urging restraint uh, on both sides okay
13: and then my last one on this just uh, so that message though has been um, people people look at that uh, on both from both sides look at that and 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 uh, many of them and you can see this on social media you can see it on their own you know words interviews that they that they've done don't think that this administration is doing enough or that it is Pursuing uh, some somewhat of a half-hearted or trying trying try to do an all-size uh, uh, all-size fit one-size-fits-all um, kind of policy that has resulted in both the Israelis and the Palestinians being upset at what they perceive to be a lack of of, of U.S. leadership. And how do you, how do you respond to that criticism?
2: Uh, well, I would respond to that criticism, Matt, uh, by noting that uh, the United States. Um, is doing what we can, um, knowing that um, we don't um, – our uh, ability uh, in certain situations um, is going to be, uh, in some cases, limited. Um, But we are uh, speaking to our partners, we are speaking to our Israeli partners, uh, we are speaking to um, Palestinian officials, uh, again, to do what we can uh, in conjunction with the international community. Yesterday, again, we spoke to this Uh, statement on the part of the Quartet uh, that was issued. Other um, countries, other international uh, bodies, multilateral fora, um, have issued similar statements. Uh, I think the international community, um, by and large, uh, is calling for precisely what we are calling for, um, doing precisely what we have attempted to do, and to urge calm, de-escalation, and restraint. Uh, on both sides.
13: Maybe I missed it. Did, does that mean that, that you dropped your uh, opposition, your objection to the UN Security Council statement?
2: Matt, as we, as I said yesterday, uh, we want to see to it uh, that steps, whether they emanate from uh, the Israeli government, uh, the Palestinian Authority, or the UN Security Council, uh, serve not to escalate. Or provoke, but to de-escalate. So the short
13: one-word answer is no. You haven't dropped your opposition. Target.
2: We we have. Uh, has
13: has we the council come out with a statement? I'm sorry, I, I may have we, missed. We we
2: have we have continued to call uh, in multiple fora um, for de-escalation uh, and to see to it to do what we can uh, to ensure that uh, no actor takes provocative actions. <laughs> I, I get we don't it. we I don't want to see provocations. Show, but, but, uh, the, the the provocations that we have seen have resulted. Uh, in a lamentable, deeply lamentable loss of life okay. of Israeli life uh, and you of give Palestinian me a life.
13: One word answer: Yes or no? Have you dropped your objection to the Security Council presidential statement on this situation? Matt, as,
2: as you know as well as anyone does, uh, private uh, uh, sessions of the UN Security Council uh, are not are not sessions that we read out. Um, but again, our message continues to be one of de-escalation. Uh, we do not want to see any actor, be it a government uh, or be it an intergovernmental body. Uh, take an action uh, that could serve to escalate rather than de-escalate. Francisco. Uh,
14: I'm sure you'll agree that there has been no de-escalation in the last 24 hours despite your calls, rather than fresh escalation. Uh, Would you say that Israeli response is consistent with um, the right to self-defense, or is it an escalation that you ask them to uh, stop or moderate? and also as uh, the, um, uh, foreign, uh, the Secret- Secretary of State asked to his counterpart precisely to uh, stop uh, or halt the demolitions and evictions uh, of Palestinians' family?
2: Well, uh, in terms of Shekhtarah, uh, as we've uh, learned, that is a matter that the Supreme Court um, will uh, issue a ruling on uh, in the coming days. Um, obviously, we have made uh, our views clear on this. Um, uh, noting that the Palestinian families, who in many cases have lived there for generations, uh, should be treated with compassion uh, and humanity, Uh, and that continues to be uh, where we stand on this as the matter is adjudicated uh, within the Israeli uh, legal system. Uh, In terms of Israel's response, uh, again, Israel has a right to self-defense. We also recognize uh, that the Palestinian people need to be able to live. Uh, in safety and security, uh, just as Israelis do.
14: Do you consider that they are within the right to self-defense, or that the current strikes and the pledge by Prime Minister Netanyahu to even intensify them is an escalation that you condemn?
2: Uh, We stand by Israel's right to defend itself. Uh, We also stand by the principle that Palestinians uh, deserve the right uh, to live uh, in safety and security. I'm not here uh, to adjudicate military uh, operations, uh, to say what is proportional precisely, uh, what is not. Uh, But the United States um, certainly stands by the principle um, that civilians um, should not uh, – that any loss of civilian life uh, is deeply lamentable, um, whether that is a Palestinian life uh, or an Israeli life. Uh, That is why we've continued to call on calm, call for calm, continue to call uh, on all sides to de-escalate and to exercise uh, restraint in their actions. Yes, Barbara.
6: Thank you. The Palestinian news agency is saying that President Abbas received a letter today from President Biden dealing with the current situation and bilateral relations. Can you confirm that? Secondly, when it comes to East Jerusalem, my understanding from what you said yesterday is that the State Department regards it as disputed rather than occupied territory. Is that correct? And thirdly, Following on these questions about de-escalation, as you probably know, Israeli politics have shifted even further to the right over the past four years. The Israeli government has shifted further to the right. There's the influence of the hard right has grown. What makes you think you're on the same page when you call for de-escalation?
2: Uh, So on your first question, I don't have anything uh, to offer when it comes to any reported presidential correspondence. Uh, I would need to refer you to the White House um, uh, for that. What I will say, however, uh, is that American officials, including those in the State Department, have been in touch with uh, Palestinian officials um, both in this period of increased tensions uh, and uh, uh, throughout uh, this administration as we uh, work to um, build ties with the Palestinian people uh, and the Palestinian Authority. What I said yesterday um, was uh, just a slight modification on a question that was proposed, because the question I thought put words in my mouth. Uh, I made uh, the statements several weeks ago now uh, that it continues to be uh, the policy of the United States Government uh, that the West Bank uh, is occupied, Jerusalem as we know is a final status issue, um, which is uh, – the status of which is to be determined uh, by the parties uh, in the conduct of diplomacy. Yes. So do you
6: mean that that's – is it disputed then? Is that how you see it?
2: It rather is an, it, rather it, it, than
6: rather than occupied, you don't you don't classify it as occupied. It is
2: an issue that uh, uh, whose final status needs to be determined by the parties in the conduct of diplomacy.
6: And then my last question.
2: Your last question was was
6: that the Israeli ah, government has shifted yes. to the right considerably. What makes you think you're on the same page when it comes to de-escalation, especially given the influence of the hard right, as we've seen with these uh, provocations in Jerusalem?
2: Uh, well, look. Uh, we are speaking to um, – uh, we will always have a partner uh, in the Israeli Government. Uh, we are speaking uh, to our um, uh, partners in Israel um, just as we are speaking uh, to the Palestinian Authority, um, reiterating this same message, uh, a message uh, that prizes de-escalation and calm uh, in an effort to uh, put an end uh, to uh, the loss of civilian life uh, on both sides. Yes.
12: Restore calm, as, uh, other than calling the two parties to uh, uh, to restore the calm, and uh, other than uh, the uh, Israeli foreign minister, did the secretary call someone else uh, from the region? Uh,
2: so, on your um, well, to take both questions, I – what I would say uh, is that senior American officials uh, and American officials at, at uh, various levels, uh, uh, in fact have been in touch uh, with their Israeli and Palestinian counterparts uh, in recent days. Uh, We have, of course, mentioned National Security Advisor Sullivan's call uh, to his counterpart. Uh, Deputy Secretary Sherman uh, has spoken to her counterpart. Secretary Blinken uh, has spoken to his Israeli counterpart as of just uh, a couple hours ago now. The same is true um, uh, with – when it comes to uh, Palestinian counterparts. Uh, That interaction has taken place. Um, uh, with both Israeli and Palestinian counterparts from this building, uh, from our uh, uh, embassy in Israel, uh, and it will continue uh, going forward uh, as well. Look, the United States is doing what we can. We are doing what we can in close coordination uh, with the international community. Um, We know, um, whether it is this issue uh, or just about any other issue under the sun, Uh, that when we demonstrate engagement, uh, when we um, step up and use our voice, uh, as we have uh, done both in public and in private, uh, that um, it tends to have a catalytic effect. uh, And uh, we have been gratified um, by the international community, uh, largely speaking in unison, uh, calling for restraint, calling for calm, calling for de-escalation. We know that uh, is going to be an important ingredient. Uh, if we are to fulfill our desire to see a diminution um, of this uh, violence and of this bloodshed, which of course remains our ultimate goal. Yes. Um, So you started
8: off yesterday by um, saying that we are condemning the rocket attacks into Israel, and today was no different. You again uh, condemned the uh, attacks against Israel by the uh, Palestinian side. But yesterday uh, you fell short of condemning the pictures of uh, Palestinian children killed as a result of Israeli airstrikes. Have you seen those pictures, first of all, and does the State Department have anything to say against that?
2: Uh, I have seen those pictures. Um, those pictures, um, it's, it's hard not to look at those pictures and um, uh, feel, um, uh, sense the, the, the suffering. Um, it is precisely uh, why today, We have called uh, for restraint and de-escalation in an effort to preserve um, civilian life. Um, uh, And we recognize that Israelis have been killed, Palestinians uh, have been killed. Um, And you you raised yesterday. Um, What I said yesterday I think um, uh, bears repeating because I I don't want it to be glossed over. Um, When I came out here yesterday, um, reports had just emerged. We didn't uh, have uh, uh, independent uh, verification of um, what had transpired. Uh, And so we think it's important uh, that um, before um, we speak publicly, um, whether it's uh, the State Department or the U.S. government, um, that we have uh, a solid understanding of the facts on the ground. Uh, Today, um, some 24 hours later, we have a solid understanding of the facts on the ground. We have developed uh, that understanding over the course of yesterday, and and, and today, of course, um, we've seen more um, deeply uh, disturbing um, uh, developments. Uh, The loss of life uh, of Palestinian – innocent Palestinians, of innocent Israelis uh, is something we deeply regret uh, and is precisely why. Um, We are doing everything we can. Uh, We are doing everything we can in coordination uh, with our international partners. Uh, to put an end uh, to a cycle of escalation and a cycle uh, of violence.
8: Okay, uh, having seen those pictures quite clearly, do you think those pictures, those scenes, are something to condemn right now? I'm sorry, I didn't. Do care. you think, having seen those pictures, do you think those pictures, those scenes of Palestinian children having been killed by um, Israeli airstrikes, do you think that's something to condemn today?
2: Well, and I said this yesterday that the loss of innocent life uh, is something uh, that we would. Uh, that, is, that is deeply um, regrettable. Um, uh, it is um, – uh, of course, uh, Israel has the right to defend itself against those um, attacking Israel, against Hamas and, and terrorists uh, responsible, um, including for the loss of life uh, in Israel. Um, but um, uh, the loss of civilian life uh, in these operations uh, is something that um, uh, we uh, deeply regret. Um, It is precisely why uh, we have said that just as uh, the Israelis do, the Palestinians have every right to live uh, in safety and security. Uh, Yes, Simon. Um,
15: Does the administration uh, regret not appointing a special envoy for the Israel-Palestine conflict, and is that something you're considering doing now? Um, And you mentioned these discussions you're having uh, and hoping to play a de-escalatory role. Does that involve contacts directly with Hamas?
2: Uh, our policy vis-a-vis Hamas is very clear Hamas is uh, a foreign terrorist organization um, uh, and it will be treated as such uh, when it comes to uh, our approach to this look I don't want to get ahead of where we are we spoke to this yesterday uh, in some detail and I made the point uh, that it is not that we have failed to prioritize this that is uh, not the case uh, what we have recognized is precisely what um, Uh, What other governments uh, have recognized and what is plain as day is that the two sides uh, are not at the present moment um, in a position to undertake uh, meaningful negotiations to advance a two-state solution. Uh, If there – if that becomes – if that opportunity becomes riper, if there is an opportunity to advance that ball in a meaningful way towards a two-state solution, um, the United States will continue to be deeply engaged towards that end. Uh, And we will continue to be deeply engaged towards that end because we recognize that only a two-state solution uh, will serve the interests of Israelis, of Palestinians, and would be consistent uh, with our interests and our values. It would preserve Israel's identity as a Jewish and democratic state. Uh, It would fulfill the legitimate aspirations of the Palestinian people for sovereignty and dignity uh, in a state of their own. Uh, That's what we would like to see happen. Uh, That has been the longstanding uh, position of successive American administrations. Uh, Now, of course, uh, a uh, negotiated two-state solution has uh, eluded any number of uh, American administrations uh, over time. Uh, We are doing what we can now uh, to, I would say, lay the groundwork, uh, to be in a better position going forward uh, to potentially make progress. of course, we have uh, a stalwart relationship um, with Israel. Um, those ties continue to be uh, close, of course. Um, when it comes to the Palestinians, this administration has um, uh, made an effort to reestablish ties with the Palestinian people, uh, with the Palestinian Authority, um, uh, in any number of ways, whether that is our humanitarian uh, assistance, um, uh, whether it is our uh, engagement as well, and, and that will continue. Uh, so it is not that uh, we have not been paying attention. Um, uh, we have been very much engaged, deeply engaged, and that predates this cycle of escalation uh, that we've seen over the past several days. Uh, and it, in fact, started uh, in the earliest days of this administration. Yes.
16: Is the administration any closer to naming an ambassador to Israel? And is that something that's going to be expedited in light of the current tensions?
2: Uh, well. Uh, so as you know, uh, there have been, I believe, 11 uh, uh, ambassadorial nominations put forward um, by this administration, nine uh, of career officials, two of um, uh, uh, non-career officials, both of whom, um, uh, of course, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, who is now confirmed as our U.S. ambassador, uh, and Chris Liu, um, who is now nominated to also serve at uh, the U.S. UN. Um, when it comes to forthcoming nominations, I know that um, all of these are a priority, um, but it's especially a priority um, uh, when it comes to our closest partners. Uh, and Israel, of course, uh, is among them. Uh, but I just don't have a, a time frame for you on that. Yes.
17: With Univision Network, um, talking about the situation it, in Colombia.
2: Is there any, anything more yeah, on. Um, I just have a really brief Before, Before, let me just make sure we get uh, questions before we go back. Yes.
7: Hi, thanks. Um, just a, bu- a bureaucratic in line with um, what Jenny was asking. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barbara Leaf has been nominated but hasn't had a hearing yet. Is that correct?
2: That is my understanding, yes.
7: Okay. Um, yesterday, there was stark contrast between the statements that um, Secretary Blinken made and Jordanian Foreign Minister um, Safaidi. In which Blinken emphasized the two sides and um, you know Israel's right to self-defense, whereas Safadi um, zone you know was was very firm about all of the Palestinian grievances. That's what he emphasized. How do you bridge that gap as you try to find international partners like Jordan, like Egypt, to deal with this crisis? Well, I think
2: if you look at the statement um, both from Secretary Blinken uh, and uh, the foreign minister, uh, what you saw yesterday um, was uh, agreement. Uh, that the status quo of Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif needed to be um, preserved. Um, Both sides were very much uh, in agreement there. Um, Both sides were very much in agreement um, uh, in calling for de-escalation, calling for calm. So I think I would um, take issue with the idea that there was um, uh, uh, much daylight there. Now of course, we only speak for ourselves, um, but uh, the preservation of the status quo um, and prioritizing uh, call for restraint. Call for calm, call for de-escalation uh, is something you certainly heard from both individuals yesterday. Matt? Sorry, you, well, said nice. when,
13: you said Wendy Sherman talked to her. She did. his her Israeli her Israeli sorry, deputy Israeli foreign minister. That's okay, right. so are, do you have do you have these three calls then? And what was that?
2: Sorry, what was what? When was that? That was over the weekend.
13: So it around the same, t- roughly the same time that Jake Sullivan spoke to his, okay. So you have these three calls then: um, Sullivan, Blinken, Sherman. I, I
2: don't want to say that's the entirety. Those are the principal level calls so, that that we have. Uh, okay. Read well, have right.
13: any of those people spoken to anyone on the Palestinian side from the Palestinian Authority, or uh. do you believe that they don't have any influence or they're not able to? You know, no, I didn't to, say that at all. I didn't say well, that have, at all. In have, fact, have, I said have, that
2: there has been engagement uh, with the Palestinian Authority. At what level?
13: Not these levels.
2: At, at the appropriate level. Well, what does that mean? At, at, at the appropriate level. Has, me, me,
13: has the secretary or the deputy secretary made any effort or called or made any effort to call uh, Palestinian? We we have engaged leaders? our
2: Palestinian counterparts both in the context of this, but um, uh, well before this too, uh, on a regular basis um, to. Um, uh, okay. Discuss issues of mutual well, concern.
13: Who, if you're happy to talk about the Israeli foreign minister and the Israeli deputy foreign minister and the Israeli national security advisor, who on the Palestinian side have these people been in touch with?
2: We have engaged with various um, Palestinian officials. Uh,
13: Do you at, even at, know their names? At,
2: at different levels. Um, All right. But I will. And then just the
13: other thing. Just. I mean, it's a good question that Francesco is asking. why Why? Do do they do they not have names? Do you think that they don't have any influence? No, that's that's
2: not it at all, Matt. We we have have engaged with them. uh... Why
13: is it why why is it a secret? If you're happy to talk about going after calling up the Israelis and telling them in person, personally, you know, voice to voice, if not face to face, Mm -hmm. to exercise restraint. Who on the Palestinian side are you calling? You can't talk to Hamas. So presumably, you got to talk to someone in the PA. Who is it you're talking to?
2: If we have any more details to read out of those calls, we'll let you know. But uh, we have engaged regularly uh, in an effort to discuss these areas of mutual
13: concern. And then just on that other question about Jerusalem and you saying the final Mm -hmm. status needs to be adjudicated, Mm -hmm. that's fine. That's well and good. I guess the the question, though, is what is the – what does the U.S. regard the status of East Jerusalem right now?
2: Jerusalem is a final status issue that needs to be — What is the status
13: of it right now? Because yesterday we heard the Jordanian foreign minister. mm -hmm. As was mentioned, calling for con- continuation of the status quo. Well, so, and is, absolutely, if that's something you agree with, what is the current
2: status we, quo? We have also called for a preservation of the status quo, what especially on these holy, uh, pertaining to these holy sites. So what is the uh, status, uh, temple, status quo? The, the Temple Mount. Obviously, Jordan has an important custodial role there as well, um, but Jerusalem is a final status issue. That uh, it has been the position of successive American administrations that uh, Jerusalem and its final status needs to be determined um, by the two sides. Lalit.
12: One more, one more, what, one more, please. On, uh, sure. uh, is the U.S. ready to call for an international conference
2: or regional conference to push the two-state solution? I, I think um, this goes back to what we were saying before. Um, what we have been focused on, um, one, uh, is uh, when it comes to the Palestinians re-engaging um, with the Palestinian uh, leadership, uh, with the Palestinian people. Um, obviously, we've been in close. Um, contact and coordination uh, with our Israeli partners as well. I think if we get to a point uh, where uh, a – some sort of personnel announcement uh, or some sort of gathering, um, uh, international gathering, would be potentially conducive um, to advancing uh, the two-state solution, uh, that is something we would uh, approach uh, in turn. Um, But I think the reality at the present moment as we – all have seen in recent hours, in fact, uh, is that we're not at that point. Um, uh, the time is not yet right uh, to do something like that. Uh, it is our goal to lay the steps and to um, make incremental progress um, uh, in the hopes that we can be in a position uh, to move the ball forward towards a two-state solution over time. Okay. Lalit.
1: I want to ask you about the India situation. Uh, what is your assessment about it, and how is the COVID-19 assistance to India? From the U.S. going on, how long this will continue? Can you give us an update? Sure, happy to do that.
2: Um, as you know, Lalit, Lalit the uh, um, USAID issued um, a pretty comprehensive fact sheet um, when it comes to our um, uh, aid to India uh, in recent days. Uh, taken together, um, our assistance to combat uh, COVID-19 in India uh, has totaled about 100 million dollars uh, in all. Um, we're continuing to work closely with uh, Indian officials and health experts uh, to identify uh, continued needs and emerging needs um, in this ongoing crisis. As you know, uh, there have been now six uh, airlifts to India uh, deployed in the course of six days. Um, among uh, the supplies included in those airlifts, 20,000 courses are from Disavir, uh nearly 1,500 oxygen uh, cylinders, 550 uh, mobile oxygen concentrators. 1 million rapid diag- diagnostic uh, tests, nearly 2.5 million N95 masks, uh, large scale deployable oxygen concentration system, pulse oximeters, uh, and I could go um, on and on. Um, uh, in addition, uh, USAID uh, immediately allocated uh, funding to purchase locally an additional 1,000 uh, mobile uh, oxygen. Concentrators. Uh, I would add that even as the United States government has um, delivered these supplies, totaling some $100 million, um, other elements have also stepped up, uh, NGOs um, as well as uh, the private sector. And we understand that uh, the private sector to date has uh, donated an additional $400 million, totaling a half billion dollars, in assistance to India. Just as I was talking about our catalytic, catalytic effect. Uh, in another context earlier. Um, As you know, uh, Secretary Blinken, um, Special uh, 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 Coordinator uh, Gail Smith um, participated uh, in calls the other week um, with the um, uh, U.S.-India Business Council and the Chamber of Commerce uh, in an effort uh, to um, uh, elicit – and to uh, elicit additional uh, supplies from the private sector, which we have been uh, terrifically gratified to see.
1: And secondly, uh, you must have seen the news reports that China has warned Bangladesh against joining Quad. So two questions. Is there a move to expand the Quad, and secondly, how do you see the, the statement coming out of China?
2: Well, uh, we have taken note of uh, that statement from the PRC ambassador to Bangladesh. Um, what we would say is that we respect Bangladesh's sovereignty and we respect Bangladesh's right uh, to make foreign policy decisions for itself. Uh, we have uh, an incredibly strong relationship uh, with Bangladesh. We work closely uh, with our partners there on a range of issues, from economic growth uh, to climate change to humanitarian uh, issues. Um, and when it comes to the Quad, uh, we've said this before, but um, the Quad—it's an informal, um, essential, um, multilateral mechanism um, that uh, right now conveys. Um, uh, convenes uh, like-minded democracies, the United States, uh, India, Australia, and Japan, uh, to coordinate um, in the Indo-Pacific uh, and fundamentally uh, to push forward our goal of a free and open uh, Indo-Pacific uh, region.
1: One yes. more, if I, I can. Um, India has started 5G trial and Chinese companies not, are not being allowed to be part of it. Uh, U.S. You know, have been insisting on its friends and allies that they shouldn't let the Chinese companies be be part of the 5 5G trials. How do you see the developments, Vivek?
2: Well, this was a sovereign decision of on the part of uh, the Indian government. So we refer you to the government of India for uh, any uh, comment on that decision. What I would say more broadly, uh, and we've we've uh, talked about this um, before, but it is true that we are deeply concerned uh, about the dangers of installing. Uh, networks with equipment that can be manipulated, disrupted, or potentially controlled um, by the PRC, uh, and allowing untested uh, communications – untrusted telecommunications suppliers uh, like Huawei or ZTE uh, to participate in or uh, to have any control over any part of a 5G network um, creates, we think, unacceptable risk uh, to national security, to critical infrastructure, uh, to privacy. Into uh, human rights as well. Yes. Thank you.
8: Um, Australia's foreign minister
0: will be here in a couple of days, Maurice Payne. I was wondering what will be top of the agenda for the administration. Um, and specifically, will you have a message on climate uh, given Australia didn't make any new commitments on emissions reduction at the Leader summit a couple of weeks ago?
2: Well, we're very fortunate to have um, a uh, strong in uh, broad uh, relationship um, with uh, our Australian ally. It will be an opportunity for uh, the secretary um, and uh, his counterpart uh, to discuss a range of issues including uh, this idea of a free and open uh, Indo-pacific uh, that we've discussed both bilaterally uh, and multilaterally um, in uh, the context of uh, the quad but I don't want to get ahead of uh, the bilateral meeting yes
17: Uh, about the situation in Colombia, Uh, how does the U.S. government receive these allegations of human rights violations and also police abuses in the Colombian protest? And also, my second question is, the U.S. is the Colombia's largest trading and investment partner. Uh, Shouldn't the U.S. use this as an opportunity to promote peace and justice in Colombia? And my third question is, what are the steps that the U.S. is taking to help Colombia? With these protests, with these crises,
2: well, um, we've made this point before, but it, it bears repeating that we're we're deeply saddened um, by the loss of life uh, during the protests that have taken uh, place throughout Colombia in recent days, uh, and we send our condolences to uh, the victims uh, as well as to their families and uh, other uh, loved ones um, all over the world. Uh, and of course, this includes in Colombia. Uh, citizens uh, in democratic countries have every right uh, to um, protest peacefully, um, but we also know uh, that violence, uh, that vandalism uh, is an abuse of of that right. Um, We call on – just as we condemn um, uh, violence and vandalism, um, we do call upon the police uh, to respect the rights of peaceful protesters. Um, We continue to urge the utmost restraint by uh, Colombian Colombian police in maintaining uh, public order. Uh, We also call on Colombian authorities to continue to investigate Um, reports that have emerged of uh, police excess. Uh, We welcome the Colombian government's proposal to bring together stakeholders in political dialogue, uh, and and we encourage uh, full participation in those talks, Uh, and we'll continue to address these issues uh, through peace and political dialogue uh, in a way that puts human rights uh, at the core of that policy going forward.
17: Do you think the U.S. should do more to help Colombia, with the situation, I mean, it's escalating, it's been already two weeks. There are hundreds of deaths, missing people.
2: We, we have continued to engage with our Colombian partners on this. We have done this um, from uh, the State Department here, from our uh, embassy in, in Bogota, uh, and that won't change. We'll continue to be engaged. Uh, uh, I think we've called on. Yes? I
14: an open sky Since, uh, uh, since um, Russia is going forward mm-hmm. with their withdrawal, uh, which, of course, was decided after the U.S. once by, uh, by the pre- previous administration. Can you – do you have any comment on that, and do, do you – can you take the, the, the opportunity to precise what this administration stance towards uh, Open Skies is?
2: Well, um, we haven't made a decision on the future of uh, American participation in the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, we are, uh, at the moment, actively reviewing matters uh, related to the treaty. Um, importantly, we are consulting uh, with our allies and partners, as we always do, um, on these matters. Uh, Russia's own continuing non-compliance with the treaty um, is one of uh, several um, pertinent factors as we take stock of things. Uh, as this process continues, we encourage Russia to take steps to come back into compliance Uh, With the uh, treaty. Saw one more hand. Okay, seeing, well, sure.
16: Afghanistan, I don't know if anyone else has anything. Afghanistan. Are you any closer to um, assessing who's to blame for the deadly explosion over the weekend? Yesterday, you said it bore resemblance to attacks by ISIS K, but have you determined that they are, in fact, behind that attack?
2: Uh, We haven't yet uh, uh, determined um, uh, attribution uh, for the attack. What I said yesterday, uh, about the attack bearing some of the hallmarks of previous ISIS-K attacks, including uh, the location uh, of uh, this attack, um, continues to be the case, but we don't yet have uh, conclusive attribution.
16: And then, again, on uh, Mark Freericks, the uh, hostage being held by the Taliban, are you closer to getting him out as we are moving further along in the withdrawal? Process? We have
2: uh, no higher priority um, than uh, the uh, safe release uh, and the return of. Uh, detained Americans held all over the world. Um, that includes uh, Mr. Freerichs, uh in Afghanistan. Uh, the Secretary, um, uh, in one of his earliest um, engagements, had an opportunity to meet with um, many of the families of detained Americans um, so that he could um, personally and sincerely uh, relay uh, the priority we attached uh, and we do attach to all of these cases. Um, you've heard us say in the case of Mr. Freyricks, um he has been um, uh, repeated. We have repeatedly raised his case, um, including in Doha, um, uh, and we will continue to do everything we can um, to affect uh, his safe return uh, to his family. Yes. One on, uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um,
15: a couple of Ukrainian officials have spoken about the um, supposed withdrawal of Russian troops from around the border and mm-hmm. um, saying that only about. Uh, 3,500 troops actually withdrew, and there's about 100,000 troops remaining um, on the border. Do, do you? Does your assessment kind of concur with with
2: those numbers? And, and are you still concerned about that situation? Well, I'm not in a position to give you um, precise numbers um, on of uh, Russian troops that remain uh, on or near the border. What I can say, however, and you heard this from Secretary Blinken when we were in uh, Kiev last week, uh, he made the point that even as uh, we have Uh, seen reports of Russian withdrawal, and we've been able to confirm um, um, uh, that some Russian forces have been relocated. Uh, Tensions remain uh, high because Russia uh, does maintain uh, a large number uh, of forces along the border. Uh, The number of forces that Moscow continues to maintain uh, in the region uh, still is – has not been matched uh, since the 2014 um, uh, invasion. Um, And so it is still a cause uh, for concern. Um, it was a topic of discussion um, at, when we were in NATO um, several weeks ago now. It was a topic of discussion at the G7 uh, last week, and of course it was a topic of discussion uh, in our uh, meetings with our uh, partners in Kyiv. Um, and we went there uh, precisely to signal um, that the United States stands with Ukraine, um, the international uh I should say the uh, um, uh, we and our like-minded partners um, stand with uh, Kyiv in the face of this uh, intimidation uh, and will continue to do so as long as um, these acts of aggression and intimidation persist thank you all very much thank
13: you
1: Sign up for
7: the newsletter so you never miss an update.
16: Commercial
13: free.
2: We call on all sides to exercise restraint and to exercise calm. The United States will continue to remain engaged with senior Israeli officials and Palestinian leadership in the days and weeks ahead. Just today, in fact, Secretary Blinken had an opportunity to speak to his counterpart, Israeli Foreign Minister Ashkenazi, to condemn the rocket attacks and to reiterate this important message of de-escalation. Next, in view of the ongoing COVID-19 crisis in Brazil, the United States is partnering with the Pan American Health Organization, or PAHO, to provide access to approximately $17 million worth of essential medications to treat critically ill COVID-19 patients who require intubation. To be connected to life saving ventilators. Today, 164 pallets of medication arrived in Sao Paulo and are being prepared by the Brazilian Ministry of Health for distribution to hospitals across the country. The United States government facilitated supply will enable Brazil to meet its critical hospital needs for at least 30 days. This action comes in addition to over $16.9 million in direct US government assistance and $75 million in private sector support. To Brazilian communities and governments across the country. As we have consistently said, as long as the virus continues to spread anywhere, it remains a threat to people everywhere, including to Americans here at home. That is why this administration has stepped up to again help lead the global effort to fight the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, and we will continue to do so going forward. And finally, the United States Government welcomes the announcement by President Ghani that the Afghan Government will join the Taliban in observing a ceasefire over the Eid al-Fitr holiday. We urge both sides to build on the momentum of this ceasefire by engaging in serious negotiations on a political settlement and a permanent and comprehensive ceasefire. While the Eid ceasefire is a positive step, innocent Afghan civilians have borne the costs of decades of war, and they deserve much more than just three days free of violence. The United States remains committed to the Afghan peace process, which presents the best opportunity for Afghans to reach a just and durable political settlement, and to assure ensure a future for Afghanistan that is free of terrorism and of senseless violence. And with that, I'm happy to take your questions.
13: Thanks, uh, Ned. On the um, call between uh, the secretary and the foreign, the Israeli foreign minister, when you said that he condemned the uh, rocket attacks from Gaza into Israel, and then you also said he. Uh, reiterated our important message of de-escalation mm-hmm. um, to you or to the to the administration what does that mean from the Israeli side
2: could you repeat that what does that mean from the Israeli side
13: from from the Israeli side what specifically would you like to see them do to de-escalate I'm going to ask the same thing about the Palestinian side uh,
2: well uh, as you know Matt we have called uh, on both sides and in fact uh, given Hamas's uh, horrific Uh, terrorist attack, its rocket fire into Israel. We have called on all sides, uh, of course including Hamas, um, to cease uh, this activity. Uh, The loss of life, the loss of Israeli life, the loss of Palestinian life, uh, it's something that we deeply regret. Uh, We um, are urging this message of de-escalation to see this loss of life uh, come to an end. Um, As you know, we've been very clear that Israel does have a right to uh, defend itself. Um, uh, at the same time, uh, reports of uh, civilian deaths uh, are something that um, we regret uh, and that we would like to see come to a stop.
13: Yeah, but that, but what specifically do you want to – say other than an end to the rocket attacks from, from okay. Gaza into Israel, which is a specific thing which you've called for already, from the Israeli side and from the Palestinian side in terms of – What's happening in East Jerusalem and uh, out, out, on uh, around the holy sites? What specifically would you like to see?
2: Well, what I would say is that we have seen some encouraging steps, um, both from Israel and from Palestinians. The decision yesterday to reroute uh, the uh, Jerusalem Day parade. The decision on the part of the Israeli Supreme Court to delay uh, the Sheikhsraa. Uh, decision was, was 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 welcome, uh, as as, <laughs> as 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 was as was the decision by uh, Prime Minister Abbas uh, to, um, a uh, President Abbas, excuse me, uh, to um, uh, call off uh, the uh, Eid celebration, uh, Eid um, uh, celebration. Uh, so look, I am not going to um, offer uh, specific advice uh, to both sides uh, or either side from the podium. I will say that our message continues to be one of uh, prioritizing de-escalation urging calm urging restraint uh, on both sides okay
13: and then my last one on this just uh, so that message though has been um, people people look at that uh, on both from both sides look at that and 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 uh, many of them and you can see this on social media you can see it on their own you know words interviews that they that they've done don't think that this administration is doing enough or that it is Pursuing uh, some somewhat of a half-hearted or trying trying try to do an all-size uh, uh, all-size fit one-size-fits-all um, and kind of policy that has resulted in both the Israelis and the Palestinians being upset at what they perceive to be a lack of of, of U.S. leadership. And that. how do you, how do you respond to that criticism?
2: Uh, well, I would respond to that criticism, Matt, uh, by noting that uh, the United States. Um, is doing what we can, um, knowing that um, we don't um, – our uh, ability uh, in certain situations um, is going to be, uh, in some cases, limited. Um, But we are uh, speaking to our partners, we are speaking to our Israeli partners, uh, we are speaking to um, Palestinian officials, uh, again, to do what we can uh, in conjunction with the international community. Yesterday, again, we spoke to this. Uh, statement on the part of the Quartet uh, that was issued. Other um, countries, other international uh, bodies, multilateral fora, um, have issued similar statements. Uh, I think the international community, um, by and large, uh, is calling for precisely what we are calling for, um, doing precisely what we have attempted to do, and to urge calm, de-escalation, and restraint. on both sides.
13: Maybe I missed it. Does that mean that you dropped your opposition, your objection to the UN Security Council statement?
2: Matt, as we – as I said yesterday, uh, we want to see to it uh, that steps, whether they emanate from uh, the Israeli Government, uh, the Palestinian Authority, or the UN Security Council, uh, serve not to escalate. Uh, or provoke, but to de-escalate. So the short
13: one-word answer is no. You haven't dropped your opposition. Topic.
2: We we have. Uh, has has we the council come out with a statement? I'm sorry, I, I, I may have we, missed. We we have it. we have continued to call uh, in multiple fora um, for de-escalation uh, and to see to it to do what we can uh, to ensure that uh, no actor takes provocative actions. I, I get we don't it. we don't, don't want to see stop, provocations. But, but, uh, the, the the provocations that we have seen have resulted. Uh, In a lamentable, deeply lamentable loss of life of Israeli life uh, and of Palestinian life.
13: One word answer: Yes or no? Have you dropped your objection to the Security Council presidential statement on this situation?
2: Matt, as as you know as well as anyone does, uh, private uh, uh, sessions of the UN Security Council uh, are not are not sessions that we read out. Um, But again, our message continues to be one of de-escalation. We do not want to see any actor, be it a government uh, or be it an intergovernmental body. Uh, take an action uh, that could serve to escalate rather than de-escalate. Francisco. Thank you.
14: Uh, I'm sure you'll agree that there has been no de-escalation in the last 24 hours despite your calls, <clears throat> rather than fresh escalation. Uh, would you say that Israeli response is consistent with um, the right to self-defense, or is it an escalation that you ask them to uh, stop or moderate? and also as uh, the, um, uh, foreign, uh, the Sec- Secretary of State asked to his counterpart precisely to uh, stop uh, or halt the demolitions and evictions uh, of Palestinians' family.
2: Well, uh, in terms of Shekharah, uh, as we've uh, learned, that is a matter that the Supreme Court um, will uh, issue a ruling on uh, in the coming days. Um, obviously, we have made uh, our views clear on this. Um, uh, noting that the Palestinian families, who in many cases have lived there for generations, uh, should be treated with compassion uh, and humanity, Uh, and that continues to be uh, where we stand on this as the matter is adjudicated uh, within the Israeli uh, legal system. Uh, In terms of Israel's response, uh, again, Israel has a right to self-defense. We also recognize uh, that the Palestinian people need to be able to live Uh, in safety and security, uh, just as Israelis do.
14: Do you consider that they are within the right to self-defense, or that the current strikes and the pledge by Prime Minister Netanyahu to even intensify them is an escalation that you condemn?
2: Uh, We stand by Israel's right to defend itself. Uh, We also stand by the principle that Palestinians uh, deserve the right uh, to live uh, in safety and security. I'm not here uh, to adjudicate military uh, operations, uh, to say what is proportional precisely, uh, what is not. Uh, But the United States um, certainly stands by the principle um, that civilians um, should not uh, – that any loss of civilian life uh, is deeply lamentable, um, whether that is a Palestinian life uh, or an Israeli life. Uh, That is why we've continued to call on calm, call for calm, continued to call uh, on all sides to de-escalate and to exercise uh, restraint in their actions. Yes, Barbara.
6: Thank you. The Palestinian news agency is saying that President Abbas received a letter today from President Biden dealing with the current situation and bilateral relations. Can you confirm that? Secondly, when it comes to East Jerusalem, my understanding from what you said yesterday is that the State Department regards it as disputed rather than occupied territory. Is that correct? And thirdly, Following on these questions about de-escalation, as you probably know, Israeli politics have shifted even further to the right over the past four years. The Israeli government has shifted further to the right. There's the influence of the hard right has grown. What makes you think you're on the same page when you call for de-escalation?
2: Uh, So on your first question, I don't have anything uh, to offer when it comes to any reported presidential correspondence. Uh, I would need to refer you to the White House um, uh, for that. What I will say, however, uh, is that American officials, including those in the State Department, have been in touch with uh, Palestinian officials um, both in this period of increased tensions uh, and uh, uh, throughout uh, this administration as we uh, work to um, build ties with the Palestinian people uh, and the Palestinian Authority. What I said yesterday, Um, was uh, just a slight modification on a question that was proposed because the question I thought put words in my mouth. Uh, I made uh, the statement several weeks ago now uh, that it continues to be uh, the policy of the United States Government uh, that the West Bank uh, is occupied. Jerusalem, as we know, is a final status issue, um, which is – the status of which is to be determined by the parties uh, in the conduct of diplomacy. Yes. So do you
6: mean that that's – is it disputed then? Is that how you
2: see it? It rather, an, it, it, rather, than, it,
6: rather than occupied, you don't you don't classify it as occupied. It is
2: an issue that uh, uh, whose final status needs to be determined by the parties in the conduct of diplomacy.
6: And then my last question.
2: Your last question was was
6: that the Israeli ah, government has shifted yes. to the right considerably. What makes you think you're on the same page when it comes to de-escalation, especially given the influence of the hard right, as we've seen with these uh, provocations in Jerusalem?
2: Uh, well, look. Uh, We are speaking to um, – we will always have a partner uh, in the Israeli Government. Uh, We are speaking uh, to our um, uh, partners in Israel, um, just as we are speaking uh, to the Palestinian Authority, um, reiterating this same message, uh, a message uh, that prizes de-escalation and calm uh, in an effort to uh, put an end uh, to uh, the loss of civilian life uh, on both sides. Yes.
12: To restore calm, as, uh, other than calling the two parties to uh, uh, to restore the calm, and uh, other than uh, the uh, Israeli foreign minister, did the secretary call someone else uh, from the region?
2: Uh, so, on your um, well, to take both questions, I, what I would say. Uh, is that senior American officials uh, and American officials at at, uh, various levels, uh, uh, in fact, have been in touch uh, with their Israeli and Palestinian counterparts uh, in recent days. Uh, We have, of course, mentioned National Security Advisor Sullivan's call. Uh, to his counterpart. Uh, Deputy Secretary Sherman uh, has spoken to her counterpart. Secretary Blinken uh, has spoken to his Israeli counterpart as of just uh, a couple hours ago now. The same is true um, uh, with – when it comes to uh, Palestinian counterparts. Uh, That interaction has taken place um, uh, with both Israeli and Palestinian counterparts from this building, uh, from our uh, uh, embassy in Israel, uh, and it will continue uh, going forward. Uh, as well. Look, the United States is doing what we can. We are doing what we can in close coordination uh, with the international community. Um, We know, um, whether it is this issue uh, or just about any other issue under the sun, uh, that when we demonstrate engagement, uh, when we um, step up and use our voice, uh, as we have uh, done both in public and in private, uh, that um, it tends to have a catalytic effect. Uh, And uh, we have been gratified um, by the international community, uh, largely speaking in unison, uh, calling for restraint, calling for calm, calling for de-escalation. We know that uh, is going to be an important ingredient uh, if we are to fulfill our desire to see a diminution um, of this uh, violence and of this bloodshed, which of course remains our ultimate goal. Yes.
1: By
8: saying that we are condemning the rocket attacks into Israel. And today was no different. You again uh, condemned the uh, attacks against Israel by the uh, Palestinian side. But yesterday, uh, you fell short of condemning the pictures of uh, Palestinian children killed as a result of Israeli airstrikes. Have you seen those pictures, first of all? And does the State Department have anything to say against that?
2: Uh, I have seen those pictures. Um, Those pictures. It's hard not to look at those pictures and um, uh, feel um, – uh, sense the the, the suffering. Um, it is precisely uh, why today we have called uh, for restraint and de-escalation uh, in an effort to preserve um, civilian life. Um, uh, and we recognize that Israelis have been killed, Palestinians uh, have been killed, um, and you, you raised yesterday. Um, I – what I said yesterday I think um, uh, bears repeating because I I don't want it to be glossed over. Um, When I came out here yesterday, um, reports had just emerged. Um, We didn't uh, have uh, uh, independent uh, verification of um, what had transpired. Uh, And so we think it's important uh, that um, before um, we speak publicly – whether it's Uh, the State Department or the U.S. Government, um, that we have uh, a solid understanding of the facts on the ground. Uh, Today, um, some 24 hours later, we have a solid understanding of the facts on the ground. We have developed uh, that understanding over the course of yesterday, and and, and today, of course, um, we've seen more um, deeply uh, disturbing um, uh, developments. Uh, The loss of life uh, of Palestinian – innocent Palestinians, of innocent Israelis uh, is something we deeply regret uh, and is precisely why. Um, We are doing everything we can. Uh, We are doing everything we can in coordination uh, with our international partners uh, to put an end uh, to a cycle of escalation and a cycle uh, of violence.
8: Quickly, uh, having seen those pictures quite clearly, do you think those pictures, those scenes are something to condemn right now? I'm sorry, I didn't. Do you think, having seen those pictures, do you think those pictures, those scenes of Palestinian children having been killed by um, Israeli airstrikes, do you think that's something to condemn today?
2: Well, and I said this yesterday, that the loss of innocent life uh, is something uh, that we would, uh, that is is deeply um, regrettable. Um, uh, It is, um, uh, of course, uh, Israel has the right to defend itself against those um, attacking Israel, against Hamas and terrorists uh, responsible, um, including for the loss of life uh, in Israel. Um, But um, uh, the loss of civilian life uh, in these operations uh, is something that um, uh, we uh, deeply regret. Um, It is precisely why uh, we have said that just as uh, the Israelis do, the Palestinians have every right to live uh, in safety and security. Uh, Yes, Simon.
15: Does the administration uh, regret not appointing a special envoy for the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict, and is that something you're considering doing now? Um, and you mentioned these discussions you're having uh, and hoping to play a de-escalatory role. It, does that involve contacts directly with Hamas?
2: Uh, our policy vis-a-vis Hamas is very clear. Hamas is uh, a foreign terrorist organization, um, uh, and it will be treated as such. Uh, When it comes to uh, our approach to this, look, I don't want to get ahead of where we are. We spoke to this yesterday uh, in some detail, and I made the point uh, that it is not that we have failed to prioritize this. That is uh, not the case. Uh, What we have recognized is precisely um, uh, what other governments uh, have recognized and what is plain as day is that the two sides uh, are not at the present moment um, in a position to undertake. Uh, meaningful negotiations to advance a two-state solution. Uh, If there – if that becomes – if that opportunity becomes riper, if there is an opportunity to advance that ball in a meaningful way towards a two-state solution, um, the United States will continue to be deeply engaged towards that end. Uh, And we will continue to be deeply engaged towards that end because we recognize that only a two-state solution uh, will serve the interests of Israelis. Of Palestinians and would be consistent uh, with our interests and our values. It would preserve Israel's identity as a Jewish and democratic state. Uh, it would fulfill the legitimate aspirations of the Palestinian people for sovereignty and dignity uh, in a state of their own. Uh, that's what we would like to see happen. Uh, that has been the longstanding uh, position of successive American administrations. Uh, now, of course, uh, a a uh, negotiated two-state solution has eluded uh, uh, any number of uh, American administrations uh, over time. Uh, we are doing what we can now uh, to, I would say, lay the groundwork uh, to be in a better position going forward uh, to potentially make progress. Um, of course, we have uh, a stalwart relationship um, with Israel. Um, those ties continue to be uh, close, of course. Um, when it comes to the Palestinians, this administration has um, uh, made an effort to reestablish ties with the Palestinian people, uh, with the Palestinian Authority, um, uh, in any number of ways, whether that is our humanitarian uh, assistance, um, uh, whether it is our uh, engagement as well, and, and that will continue. Uh, so it is not that uh, we have not been paying attention. Um, uh, we have been very much engaged, deeply engaged, and that predates. This cycle of escalation uh, that we've seen over the past several days. Uh, and it in fact started uh, in the earliest days of this administration. Yes?
16: Is the administration any closer to naming an ambassador to Israel? And is that something that's going to be expedited in light of the current tensions?
2: Uh, well, uh, so as you know, uh, there have been, I believe, 11 uh, uh, ambassadorial nominations put forward um, by this administration nine uh, of career officials, two of um, uh, uh, non career officials, both of whom, um, uh, of course, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, who is now confirmed as our U.S. ambassador, uh, and Chris Liu, um, who is now nominated to also serve at uh, the U.S. UN. Um, when it comes to forthcoming nominations, I know that um, all of these are a priority, um, but it's especially a priority um, uh, when it comes to our closest partners. Uh, and Israel, of course, uh, is among them, uh, but I just don't have a, a time frame for you on that. Yes.
17: With Univision Network, um, talking about the situation it, in Colombia. Is
2: there any anything more? Yeah, on um, I, I just have a really brief. Before, when, before, let me just make sure we get uh, questions before we go back. Yes.
17: Hi, thanks. Um, just a, bu-
7: a bureaucratic, in line with um, what Jenny was asking. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barbara Leaf has been nominated, but hasn't had a hearing yet. Mm-hmm. Is that correct?
2: That is my understanding. Yes.
7: Okay. Um, yesterday, there was stark contrast between the statements that um, Secretary Blinken made and Jordanian Foreign Minister um, Safadi. In which Blinken emphasized the two sides and um, you know Israel's right to self-defense, whereas Safadi um, Zone you know was was very firm about all of the Palestinian grievances. That's what he emphasized. How do you bridge that gap as you try to find international partners like Jordan, like Egypt, to deal with this crisis? Well, I
2: think if you look at the statement um, both from Secretary Blinken uh, and uh, the foreign minister, uh, what you saw yesterday um, was uh, agreement. Uh, that the status quo of Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif needed to be um, preserved. Um, Both sides were very much uh, in agreement there. Um, Both sides were very much in agreement um, uh, in calling for de-escalation, calling for calm. So I think I would um, take issue with the idea that there was um, uh, uh, much daylight there. Now of course, we only speak for ourselves, um, but uh, the preservation of the status quo um, and prioritizing uh, call for restraint. Call for calm, call for de-escalation uh, is something you certainly heard from both individuals yesterday. Matt? Sorry, you, well, said when,
13: you said Wendy Sherman talked to her. Counterpart, she did his her Israeli, counterpart, her so Israeli counterpart. deputy Israeli foreign Okay, right. so are, do you have do you have these three calls
2: then? And when was that? Sorry, what was what? When was that? That was over the weekend.
13: So around the same, roughly the same time that Jake Sullivan spoke to his, okay. So you have these three calls then: um, Sullivan, Blinken, Sherman. I I don't
2: want to say that's the entirety. Um, Those are okay, but those are the principal level calls that that we have. uh, Okay. Well, have
13: any of those people spoken to anyone on the Palestinian side from the Palestinian Authority, or Uh, do you believe that they don't have any influence or they're not able to? No, I didn't say that at all. I didn't say that at all. In fact, I said
2: that there has been engagement uh, with the Palestinian Authority. At what level?
13: Not these levels.
2: At, at the appropriate level. Well, what does that mean? At, at, at the appropriate level. Has, we, gi- we-
13: has the secretary or the deputy secretary made any effort or called or made any effort to call uh, Palestinian? We we have leaders. engaged our
2: Palestinian counterparts both in the context of this, but um, uh, well before this too, on a regular basis um, to um, uh, okay. discuss issues of mutual well, concern.
13: Who- If you're happy to talk about the Israeli foreign minister and the Israeli deputy foreign minister and the Israeli national security advisor, who on the Palestinian side have these people been in touch with?
2: We have engaged with various um, Palestinian officials.
13: uh, Do you even know their names at
2: at different levels? um, All right, but I will. And then just the
13: other thing. Just. I mean, it's a good question that Francesco is asking. Why? Why do do they do they not have names? Do you think that they don't have any influence? No, that's that's
2: not it at all, Matt. We uh, well, we then, have en- we have engaged with them. Uh, but why
13: is it why, why is it a secret? If you're happy to talk about going after calling up the Israelis and telling them in person, personally, you know, voice to voice, if not face to face, mm-hmm. to exercise restraint. Who on the Palestinian side are you calling? You can't talk to Hamas. So presumably you got to talk to someone in the PA. Who is it you're talking to? <laughs> uh,
2: if we have any more details to read out right. of those calls, we'll let you know. But uh, we have engaged regularly. Uh, in an effort to discuss these areas of mutual
13: concern. And then, just on that other question about Jerusalem and you saying the final mm-hmm. status needs to be adjudicated, mm-hmm. th- that's fine, that's well and good. I guess the question, though, is what is the stat- What does the U.S. regard the status of East Jerusalem right now?
2: Jerusalem is a final status yeah. issue what that is needs to be. What is the status
13: in- of it right now? Because it- yesterday we heard the Jordanian foreign minister, mm-hmm. as was mentioned, calling for. Continuation of the status quo. Well, uh, so, is, and absolutely, if that's something you agree with, what is the current status we, quo?
2: We have also called for a preservation of the status quo, especially it? on these holy, uh, pertaining to these holy sites. But what is the, uh, the temple status quo? The the Temple Mount. Obviously, Jordan has an important custodial role there as well. Um, but Jerusalem is a final status issue. That uh, it has been the position of successive American administrations that uh, Jerusalem and its final status needs to be determined um, by the two sides. Lalit. Thank you. Well,
1: one more, one more, one, one more
12: on uh, Israel. Sure. Uh, is the U.S. ready to call
2: for an international conference or regional conference to push the two-state solution? I, I think um, this goes back to what we were saying before. Um, what we have been focused on, um, one, uh, is uh, when it comes to the Palestinians re-engaging um, with the Palestinian uh, leadership, uh, with the Palestinian people. Um, obviously, we've been in close um, contact and coordination. Uh, with our Israeli partners as well. I think if we get to a point uh, where uh, a – some sort of personnel announcement uh, or some sort of gathering, um, uh, international gathering, would be potentially conducive um, to advancing uh, the two-state solution, uh, that is something we would uh, approach uh, in turn. Um, But I think the reality at the present moment, as we all have seen in recent hours, in fact, uh, is that we're not at that point. Um, uh, the time is not yet right uh, to do something like that. Uh, it is our goal to lay the steps and to um, make incremental progress um, uh, in the hopes that we can be in a position uh, to move the ball forward towards a two-state solution over time. Thanks. Okay, Lalit.
1: I wanted to ask you about the India situation. Uh, what is your assessment about it and how is the COVID-19 assistance to India from the U.S. going on? How long this will continue? Can you give us an update?
2: Sure, happy to do that. Um, as you know, Lalit, the uh, um, USAID issued um, a pretty comprehensive fact sheet um, when it comes to our um, uh, aid to India uh, in recent days. Uh, taken together, um, our assistance to combat uh, COVID 19 in India uh, has totaled about $100 million uh, in all. Um, we're continuing to work closely with uh, Indian officials and health experts. Uh, to identify uh, continued needs and emerging needs um, in this ongoing crisis. As you know, uh, there have been now six uh, airlifts to India uh, deployed in the course of six days. Um, among uh, the supplies included in those airlifts, 20,000 courses are from Disavere, uh nearly 1,500 oxygen uh, cylinders, 550 uh, mobile oxygen concentrators, one million rapid dia- diagnostic uh, tests, nearly 2.5 million N95 masks, uh, large-scale deployable oxygen concentration system, pulse oximeters, uh, and I could go um, on and on. Um, uh, in addition, uh, USAID uh, immediately allocated uh, funding to purchase locally an additional 1,000 uh, mobile uh, oxygen concentrators. Uh, I would add that even as the United States Government has – um delivered these supplies, totaling some $100 million. Um, other elements have also stepped up uh, – NGOs um, as well as uh, the private sector. And we understand that uh, the private sector to date has uh, donated an additional $400 million, totaling a half billion dollars in assistance to India. Just as I was talking about our catalytic, catalytic effect uh, in another context earlier, um, as you know, uh, Secretary Blinken, um, Special uh, 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 coordinator uh, Gail Smith um, participated uh, in calls the other week um, with the um, uh, U.S.-India Business Council and the Chamber of Commerce uh, in an effort uh, to um, uh, elicit um, – and to uh, elicit additional uh, supplies from the private sector, which we've been uh, terrifically gratified to see.
1: And secondly, uh, you must have seen the news reports that China has warned Bangladesh against joining Quad. So, two questions. Is there a move to expand the Quad? And secondly, how do you see the, the statement coming out of China?
2: Well, uh, we have taken note of uh, that statement from the PRC ambassador to Bangladesh. Um, what we would say is that we respect Bangladesh's sovereignty and we respect Bangladesh's right uh, to make foreign policy decisions for itself. Uh, we have uh, an incredibly strong relationship uh, with Bangladesh. We were closely uh, with our partners there on a range of issues from economic growth uh, to climate change to humanitarian uh, issues, um, and when it comes to the Quad, uh, we've said this before, but um, the Quad—it's an informal, um, essential um, multilateral mechanism um, that uh, right now conveys um, uh, convenes uh, like-minded democracies: the United States, uh, India, Australia, and Japan—to uh, coordinate. Um, in the Indo-Pacific, uh, and fundamentally, uh, to push forward our goal of a free and open uh, Indo-Pacific uh, region. One yes, more, if
1: yeah. I can, um, uh, India has started 5G trial, and Chinese companies no, are not being allowed to be part of it. Uh, U.S. you know have been insisting on its friends and allies that they shouldn't let the Chinese companies be be part of the 5G trials. How do you see the developments by yeah.
2: Well, this was a sovereign decision of, on the part of uh, the Indian government. So we refer you to the government of India for uh, any uh, comment on that decision. What I would say more broadly, uh, and we've we've uh, talked about this um, before, but it is true that we are deeply concerned uh, about the dangers of installing uh, networks with equipment that can be manipulated, disrupted, or potentially controlled um, by the PRC. Uh, and allowing untested uh, communications, um, untrusted telecommunication suppliers uh, like Huawei or ZTE uh, to participate in or uh, to have any control over any part of a 5G network um, creates, we think, unacceptable risk uh, to national security, to critical infrastructure, uh, to privacy, uh, and to human rights as well. Yes. Thank you. Here in a couple of days. Maurice Penn, I was wondering what will be top of the agenda for the administration. Um,
0: and specifically, will you have a message on climate uh, given Australia didn't make any new commitments on emissions reduction at the Leader summit a couple of weeks ago?
2: Well, we're very fortunate to have um, a uh, strong uh, and broad uh, relationship um, with uh, our Australian ally. It will be an opportunity for uh, the Secretary um, and uh, his counterpart uh, to discuss a range of issues, including uh, this idea of a free and open uh, Indo-Pacific that we've discussed both bilaterally uh, and multilaterally um, in uh, the context of uh, the Quad. But I don't want to get ahead of uh, the bilateral meeting. Yes.
17: Uh, About the situation in Colombia. uh, How does the U.S. Government receive these allegations of human rights violations and also police abuses in the Colombian protest? And also my second question is. The U.S. is the Colombia's largest trading and investment partner. Uh, shouldn't the U.S. use this as an opportunity to promote peace and justice in Colombia? And my third question is, what are the steps that the U.S. is taking to help Colombia with this protest, with this crisis?
2: Well, um, we've made this point before, but it, it bears repeating that we're, we're deeply saddened um, by the loss of life uh, during the protests that have taken. Uh, placed throughout Colombia in recent days, uh, and we send our condolences to uh, the victims uh, as well as to their families and uh, other uh, loved ones. Um, All over the world – and of course, this includes in Colombia – citizens uh, in democratic countries have every right uh, to um, protest peacefully. um, But we also know uh, that violence, uh, that vandalism, uh, is an abuse of, of that right. Um, We call on – just as we condemn um, uh, violence and vandalism, um, we do call upon the police uh, to respect the rights of peaceful protesters. Um, We continue to urge the utmost restraint by uh, Colombian Colombian police in maintaining uh, public order. Uh, We also call on Colombian authorities to continue to investigate um, reports that have emerged of uh, police excess. Uh, We welcome the Colombian Government's proposal to bring together stakeholders in political dialogue, uh, and and we encourage uh, full participation in those talks, Uh, and we'll continue to address these issues uh, through peace and political dialogue uh, in a way that puts human rights uh, at the core of that policy going forward.
17: Do you think the U.S. should do more to help Colombia with the situation? I mean, it's escalating. It's been already two weeks. There are hundreds of deaths, missing people.
2: We, we have continued to engage with our Colombian partners on this. We have done this um, from uh, the State Department here, from our uh, embassy in, in Bogota, uh, and that won't change. We'll continue to be engaged. Uh, y- uh, I think we've called on yes. I
14: have question. Uh, uh, since um, Russia is going forward mm-hmm. with the withdrawal, uh, which of course was decided after the U.S. one by the pre- previous administration, can you do you have any comment on that? And do, do you can you? Take the, the, the opportunity to precise what this administration stands towards uh, open skies. Is.
2: Well, um, we haven't made a decision on the future of uh, American participation in the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, we are, uh, at the moment, actively reviewing matters uh, related to the treaty. Um, importantly, we are consulting uh, with our allies and partners, as we always do, um, on these matters. Uh, Russia's own continuing non compliance with the treaty um, is one of uh, several um, pertinent factors as we take stock of things. Uh, as this process continues, we encourage Russia to take steps to come back into compliance uh, with the uh, treaty. Saw so one more hand. Okay, seeing, well, sure.
16: Afghanistan. I don't know if anyone else has anything. Afghanistan. Are you any closer to um, assessing who is to blame for the deadly explosion over the weekend yesterday? You said it bore resemblance to attacks by ISIS-K, but have you determined that they are in fact behind that attack?
2: Uh, We haven't yet uh, uh, determined um, uh, attribution uh, for the attack. What I said yesterday uh, about the attack bearing some of the hallmarks of previous ISIS-K attacks, including uh, the location. Uh, Of uh, this attack um, continues to be the case, but we don't yet have uh, conclusive attribution.
16: And then again, on uh, Mark Freericks, the uh, hostage being held by the Taliban, are you closer to getting him out as we are moving further along in the withdrawal? We have
2: uh, no higher priority um, than uh, the uh, safe release uh, and the return of uh, detained Americans held all over the world. Um, That includes uh, Mr. Freericks in Afghanistan. Uh, the Secretary, um, uh, in one of his earliest um, engagements, had an opportunity to meet with um, many of the families of detained Americans um, so that he could um, personally and sincerely uh, relay uh, the priority we attached uh, and we do attach to all of these cases. Um, you've heard us say in the case of Mr. Freyricks, um he has been um, – uh, we have repeatedly raised his case, um, including in Doha. uh, And we will continue to do everything we can um, to uh, affect his safe return uh, to his family. Yes.
15: uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, A couple of Ukrainian officials have spoken about the um, supposed withdrawal of Russian troops from around the border Mm -hmm. and um, saying that only about uh, 3,500 troops actually withdrew, and there's about 100,000 troops remaining. on the border. Do, do you – does your assessment kind of concur with, with those numbers, and, and are you still concerned about that situation?
2: Well, I'm not in a position to give you um, precise numbers um, on – of uh, Russian troops that remain uh, on or near the border. What I can say, however – and you heard this from Secretary Blinken when we were in uh, Kyiv last week uh, – he made the point that even as uh, we have uh, seen reports of Russian <coughs> withdrawal and we've been able to confirm um, um, uh, that some Russian forces have been relocated, Uh, Tensions remain uh, high because Russia uh, does maintain uh, a large number uh, of forces along the border. Uh, The number of forces that Moscow continues to maintain uh, in the region uh, still is – has not been matched uh, since the 2014 um, uh, invasion. Um, And so it is still a cause uh, for concern. Um, It was a topic of discussion. Um, When we were in NATO um, several weeks ago now, it was a topic of discussion at the G7 uh, last week, and of course it was a topic of discussion uh, in our uh, meetings with our uh, partners in Kyiv. And we went there uh, precisely to signal um, that the United States stands with Ukraine, um, the international uh, – I should say the uh, um, – we and our like-minded partners um, stand with uh, Kyiv in the face of this. Intimidation uh, and will continue to do so as long as um, these acts of aggression and intimidation persist. Thank you all very much.
9: Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes.
13: Same time, same place, next week.
2: If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes.
7: this week's episode add us to your podcatcher or on itunes now so that you can make sure you never miss out on another second of our wonderful podcast we would hate for you to miss out have a great
15: week everyone